everybody. Welcome to We've Got Worm, a Daily Planet Films podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss the hit web serial worm week by week, arc by arc. My name is Matt Riemann, your host and brilliant biologist tinkering with powers I can't possibly hope to control. And I'm joined as always by my co-host Scott Daly, a homegrown homunculus created to help me in my studio. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm doing so great, Matt. It is my purpose. And as you said, this is the podcast where you, a worm expert, guide me, a first-time reader, through Wild Bo's world of superhumans, supervillains, and everything in between as I inspect, interpret, and even speculate on what the story is and where it is going. It's very hard to read that sentence when you're laughing in the background. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll try to do better next time. Uh, this week, we are beginning Arc 19 Scourge, which uh, we're covering chapters 19.1 through 19.4, including... One interlude, a bonus interlude. Uh, we pick up in this section directly where we left off with our confrontation with Noel continuing. We have Taylor uh, incapacitated, Tattletale seemingly with a plan to win somehow. Um, and we we follow Tattletale. This is a very Tattletale-centric section where we follow her plans as she kind of increasingly becomes uh, reckless and unhinged, Matt. It's very uh, interesting. Yeah, the the Tattletale stuff is particularly interesting. I mean, there, there's actually a, a a lot of secondary character work here, if, if that if that term is the right term here. There's there's a lot of characterization beats on on a fairly broad number of characters, um, and and there's really there's really no combat in the you know main story itself. It's all if there's any combat, it's in the interlude. So we're we're just yeah. getting we're just getting these interesting. Uh, character development along a, a lot of secondary characters and and like you said a, a major focus on what's going on with Telltale. yeah and it's really cool i like it a lot it is you know I, i'm kind of continually surprised because after the first half of arc 18 i was like okay we built up it's action time and i was right the the second half of arc 18 was very action heavy but because we treat these arcs as their own kind of arc um, there's, there's always, even when we move into a new arc, even if it picks up right after the other one left off, there is still this, this, uh, this lowering of action kind of, and then we slowly ramp up and build up just like it was its own independent story. So we're seeing that here that we, we kind of start in media res, but then this is this action and this tension is quickly deflated. And then we move back into our rising action as a, as pieces begin to move again for the the next phase in the encounter against echidna um, yeah it, it's good stuff yeah I, I just realized that what i said is technically wrong because it does actually start off with action but you're right it, it it actually starts off with action and then it segues into a more slow burn situation yeah um, and i would say that's yeah. f it's fair too because the action like taylor is very um passive in the yeah. action because she's kind of incapacitated throughout most right. of it so while there is action going on because she's not actively participating and it doesn't feel like the standard worm fights yeah i agree with that that may be why my brain registered it that way yeah all right um well let's let's get into the comments and questions this week scott sure thing so first of all uh, wild bow says uh, i guess i'll just read it he says i found it interesting that you remarked on weld being caught up in cape life a lot of people walk away from the interlude uh, with the take that weld is more or better adjusted and at peace uh and i didn't get the vibe that you guys felt that way about him we've had a lot of action-packed events in a short span of time do you guys have any thoughts on the balance of action versus character moments at this stretch in the story so let's let's take the weld question first i guess yeah um so we actually got a lot of respect 
responses um, like this from various different people in the Reddit thread about um, they either disagreed with our weld take. Um, Wildbow, of course, in his clever way, <laughs> leaves the question much more open for us, um, not saying specifically what he thinks or what he was going for um, because he's he's clever. But um, yeah, I think there's a lot of people that said, no, your, your read on Weld was wrong. He's very happy. He's very content. He um, he does. He doesn't need that human name. Um, I I don't I don't agree with that. I think. Well, first of all, the, the, the idea of the name was was very symbolic. Um, it was symbolic for Jessica Yamada. Um, as a way of differentiating the human side from the cape side for these people. And I think the weld that we see in this moment is one who is, if he is content, it's just because he buries him so into his career and so into his work that he doesn't have time to realize the uncomfortable truths that lay behind it of who he is and where he came from and, and what people see him as. And I think to kind of prove that, correctly we see in this interlude or this arc that that he is directly confronted with that that you know when the chance to find out where they came from and and what the truth behind the uh, case 53 is he breaks rank and he goes with with his fellow monsters quote-unquote uh to disobey orders and um so i mean i think it's too simple to say that he was just at peace and he was totally well adjusted and great um yeah yeah. Again, this is a very well-timed question, like you said, because because <laughs> I, I think it's it might even be fair to say that prior to this very um, half arc or, or arc in general, we haven't seen really too much evidence that would suggest the weld is is out of sorts. Like we've been in his head, and and he didn't he he didn't have a woe is me attitude about being a K fifty three, and and he he consistently is like, oh no, it's it's no big deal. It's really no big deal. It's water right. off my back. Um, but we also did see that like the, it, it, I think maybe it's easy to gloss over this, but like the first character beat from Weld is him being, um, a little bit irritated with the way people are treating him. Yeah. And, and then he kind of like buttons that down and, 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 and handles it. Um, and, and here, like you said, we're seeing him break ranks and, uh, and it sh shows that kind of maybe things are getting under his skin a bit more than he lets on. Yeah. And you know, it's. It's funny because even the reason why I went there, and, and I agree that in last section, I don't think we had all the pieces of evidence we need to, to definitively conclude on that. I think we got it in this arc, but also you have, you're kind of going down a list of these wards who every single one of them has some sort of problem. Like every single one of them is either deflecting or, uh, or like projecting or like frustrated or, or like losing it or losing hope. And then you have Weld, and I just think for him to for for the text to be definitively saying, no, Weld's fine. That just seems <laughs> that just seems like contrary to everything that we were doing with that interlude. So that's that's what led me to think like, no, there's something more going on here. And the name thing, the name, the 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 code name versus human name thing that Jessica is is hitting again and again throughout this interlude is a perfect symbol of what it seems that Weld's general problem is that he's not dealing with this other side of him he's he's um just being weld the cape and not being a, a human being which he still very much is and yeah. um and so that's 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 why i came to that conclusion yeah 
All right. Um, and, and regarding the second question was uh, having to do with the fact that we've had a lot of action packed events in a short span of time and asking if we had any thoughts about uh, balance of, of action versus character moments. So I wonder, does he mean short span of time, like within <laughs> um, the time passing in, in universe, or does he just mean we've had a lot of action packed arcs? Um, I guess you could take it both ways. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's an interesting question. I'm not, I'm not exactly I, I would be inclined to take it in terms of um, story um, structure. Like, itself. like, yeah, yeah, like, like page wise rather right. than. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. I don't have a problem with the the, the balance personally. Um, there There is a lot of action in this book and it's because it's like you're, when you're telling a superhero story to not have any action, I feel like would be disingenuous to the uh, to the genre. Um, but I think Wild Bo not only has those beats where it's just a lot of character work, which is almost all of this uh, arc that we're going to be talking about today, but even in those action beats, like we've talked about again and again, he works in character moments in that as well. So I feel like the balance is struck. I don't feel like, especially recently, even with all the action, like earlier in the book, you and I would get to an action sequence in our recap and we would just be like, okay, now, uh, blah, 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 fighting, 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 fighting. Let's move on. And we haven't been able to do that recently. And I think that's probably partially why our episodes have been getting longer and longer because we can't yada yada over some of the action because there's so much character stuff in it. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I don't have a problem with it at all. No, I think I think the balance that is struck here is, is very good. And I think it, it still errs on the side of, of more character moments than it does action moments, which I think is the um, the goal of the piece. So, yeah, I'm fine with it. Yeah, that, I think that makes sense. Just today, actually, we were talking about um, kind of my feelings about narrative economy and, and story economy and how um, like the, the and I, I wasn't I wasn't trying to make a judgment one way or the other. It was more of an observation of like the web serial format um, really lends itself to to this type of sprawling story where you have all of these all of these secondary characters who are very well fleshed out because you you have that space to give them all their moment and 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 like part of me sometimes is like um you know maybe this could be tightened up here or there but then the other part of me is like well tightened up like the the flip side of tightening it up means you risk uh lessening the impact of certain secondary character moments which is really not what you want in this you know in this story in particular because yeah. this is not just Taylor's story this is story of all these wards and all the undersiders and all the travelers and it's it's um you don't you don't want to say like ah oh, yeah let's just get to the what, what get to the action no like nobody really yeah. wants you to just get to the action like the, yeah. yeah so so i was i was if anything even right now i'm sort of like parsing through my ideas rather than like making any kind of judgment about it i just think it's interesting and, and i think this is a great question because it primes you to think about like the the where where we're spending our time and yeah and and why it's good that we're spending our time where we're spending it yeah and and i think when we get to the end of the this echidna section of the book we could maybe look back and say um is this something that needed to have been told in two arcs could it have been told in one we can have those conversations but i mean when you're in it like when you're reading the thing not taking the the step back and looking at it the the 10,000 foot level that we kind of do once we finish a big part but when you're you're in the middle of it 
it never feels like it, the character moments never feel like slow down. The action moments never feel like uh, I just want to get through this action to get to more character beats. Like it doesn't feel like that when you're in the middle of it. So I think that's a, a sign that the text is working. Yeah, I agree. I don't, yeah, I don't have any complaints on, on that level. Yeah. 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 That, I think that actually is a great segue into our, our next comment though. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to summarize this one because it's relatively long, but it's, yeah. it's from a uh, user Simiurge. Um, was this a YouTube comment? No, or I think this was Reddit. Yeah, this is a Reddit comment. Okay. Um, and the comment, uh, just to summarize is basically, um, this, this user is, is pleasantly surprised that, that we're, you know, bringing sort of this, this attempt at a deep literary analysis to, to a story like this and, and that it's valuable. But then they go on to say, um, uh, they go on to say that there's a glut of, of unjustifiably negative uh, like internet commentary about worm. And I, and I would make a personal aside to say there's a glut of unjustifiably negative internet criticism about everything. Um, <laughs> um, but, um, they're wondering if maybe we could, we could like take the risk of veering into some negativity, um, or, or rather like we, we could maybe go more critical, I guess is what they're saying. Right, Scott, like they're what we could be, yeah, we could stand yeah. to be a little bit more critical. Um, yeah. What's your, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah. I think we've talked about this a little bit before. Um, and we've talked about how, you know, there, there are moments that w when I think something is just flat out not working, that I'm going to bring it up and I'm going to talk about it and we're going to try to get down to not just criticize for criticism's sake, but let's look at why this didn't work. Why was this not as, uh, why this beat didn't land as well, why this motivation was a little more confusing than it is in other places. Um, I think we try to do that. I think arc 16 is a, is a good example of a spot that we did that at least the first half of that arc, um, where I was not a big fan of a lot of the events that happened in that. Um, and, and like I've said before, there are like this, this is a story that's published very fast. Um, it hasn't gone through the kind of detailed editing that a lot of books go through where you have like a, an editor actually sit down and, and go through every single thing. So there are little like little things that like you talked about, like, you know, story economy and tightening up. Um, there are like just little ways of phrasing things and structuring things that you could pick apart. Um, that kind of stuff I'm just flat out not interested in doing. Um, but also, I think a lot more largely, we like I like this book, and so because because I'm enjoying the book, I think it's much more. Not only is it more entertaining, but it's much more fulfilling for me to examine why I like it, and and to hopefully teach people that just have read it for fun and know that they like it, but maybe don't understand from like a deep literary reason why you like something. Why did this work on you? Um, and I think it's fun to explore that. And it's less fun to go totally negative all the time. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't really have much to add on that. I was just thinking about how uh, we, we did a, a review of, of the latest season of Game of Thrones. Um, what was that last night? Yeah. Um, that was on our other podcast channel. And, and we're spoilers. We're kind of negative on it. That, that was the spoiler, yeah. by the way. I'm not, I'm yeah. not going to say any real spoilers. <laughs> um, we're kind of negative on the season and, and like on some level, it's like, it's its own kind of fun to like pick apart something and, and diagnose what was wrong with it and maybe suggest things that could be improved. Um, and everyone does that. And, and, and I do that. And like, that's, it's easy to do. And that's why the internet is full of it. Um, 
um, this is like I, I see what we're doing as I don't know. It's it's more valuable to me personally to, to doing this podcast because I feel like every single episode I'm learning. I'm learning better about very like micro level techniques of of how to make a story work and, and connect and just I, I don't know it's it's uh, I, I learn a lot more doing it this way than I would if I were if I were just nitpicking and criticizing. Yeah, yeah, and 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 to to Simir's credit, I don't think he's specifically or or she um, is specifically asking us to nitpick, um, but just if something doesn't work, please explain it and please don't be afraid to do that. And, and I think, you know, that's something that I will definitely take under advisement and, and we will try to do when the opportunity arises. But the, the, the honest fact here, folks, is I really love this story so far. So if if I were to try in every episode to find something negative, to find something that like I, that that didn't land quite as as well as I wanted it to, it would get down to nitpicking. It would get down to reading the text with a specific slant of let's find something to be negative about. And that's just not something I really want to do. I don't think it's something that would be very fun to listen to. Um, but I, I, I will say that when stuff doesn't work, we are going to make sure to, to point out that it doesn't work for us and, and hopefully go into why it doesn't work and not just, not just criticize for the sake of criticism, but say, this is, this is what it failed to do. And this is in in a different place in the book where it worked and here's where it didn't. Yeah. I think that's, that's all very fair. And, uh, and I think we, we have done that in the past where it was necessary and I think we will do that going forward. Yeah. But th- thank you for your comment. I, I, I appreciate that. And I, thanks for your kind words about, uh, how we analyze the the good stuff. Um, yeah, we yeah, try very hard. So I'm glad. I'm glad to see. Whenever I see people say that kind of thing, that like people that have never looked at something with this kind of like literary analysis, which which frankly, Matt, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but like I think you can do this with every single type of book out there. Like the the idea that because it's genre fiction or something that it can't be looked at in this kind of way is ridiculous to me. And I refuse, I refuse to believe that. So, um, one of the reasons we decided to do this is because we found out that this really hadn't been done for this story and you felt it deserved it. And I read the first arc and said, yeah, this is some interesting stuff. Let's go. So, um, I, I'm, I'm happy that, that, that people are responding to it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I'm, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with you, but I, I would say like, this project wouldn't really work the way it works if if Wildbo didn't have this pervasive sense of, of themes and um, character arcs and and really do that really solidly because I mean if 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 it were if it were just a story where it were, you know it was just a story meant to entertain and didn't have themes then yeah. we would a lot of what we talk about would just sort of <laughs> yeah. not be available. I guess um, I should rephrase and say you can do this with any good book <laughs> um yeah if, if you're like if you're just gonna get down yeah you could you could i mean you could attempt this with a lot of other books and not be as successful because the material is not dense but i'm just saying that mm-hmm. just because it's genre just because it's not operating in the world of literary fiction um does not mean that it is it it does not have the things that that yeah. all novels do and the and the rules of storytelling and and the rules of yeah. of these things that that create engaging stories that people like yeah and and i'm getting dangerously close to death of the author territory here but i've heard <laughs> it said and i think i agree that that you can find themes in a work that the author didn't consciously put there but they did unconsciously put them there because they were the things that were 
on their mind when they were writing it. Yep. Um, yep. And, uh, and and it's completely valid to find and identify what those things are and talk about them. And it's quite enjoyable, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that. Um, yeah. That was a, that was a great comment. I really appreciated that. And I, I love doing this. So thank you. Yeah. All right, Scott. Let's get into the beat by beat. Sweet. We open up 19.1 and we we uh, we we're, we're very confused unless we remember where we left off because Taylor thinks she's at school and that the, the whole world around her is throbbing to a pulse and she's reeling and being shoved and, and her, her body is being torn apart and breaking every time people bump into her and the three bullies surround her and taunt her as they beat her. Yeah. And we immediately get this answer to that question that I had last week, which is how do we continue the story from Taylor's point of view uh, when she's incapacitated? Um, well, the answer to that is, of course, in the classic worm type way is we go into her head and watch her suffer horribly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, and like for the next half of this chapter, we're going to see Taylor relive some of these worst moments in her life. But it's not just normal reliving of them. It's like a terrible extreme version of those events versions that make Taylor hate everyone, hate herself. Um, so it, it, I love that this fits into everything we know about the clones because Taylor is now reliving, um, this, these nightmares and these worst parts of her life, but everything cranked up to like an 11. And that is kind of what the clones represent is, is the, their trauma and everything but cranked up to the worst possible version of it so they just react crazy to it so you can kind of understand why these clones come pooping out um in in crazy form yeah yeah um i i i found myself wondering like as we get deeper into her kind of hallucination if if like you know how much can you read into the fact that she's being given these visions like can we go all the way to the point where we say like this is happening in order to like give these clones trigger events like like by proxy. I mean, it, it's, yeah, it could be. Yeah, I, I don't necessarily think that's the case, um, but but it is interesting that that it puts you in the state very close to the trigger event. Um, it, I don't think there's no reason for it. Like, there's got to be a got to be a reason why the yeah why Noel's power does this. Yeah, and we see through Gruel later on that that the the experience is not. Uh, just singular. It's not just Taylor going through this because obviously something happens to Gru while he's in there that uh, like almost makes him catatonic. Mm -hmm. But it's it's kind of not hard to believe in this moment that maybe uh, Tattletail's specific level of self-hatred and, and guilt kind of makes this even worse than it might have been for an, anyone else. Um, mm -hmm. Because like the details here, uh, like the damage that's done to Taylor, like some guy shoves past her and like her his bag gets caught on her nostril and rip yeah. her nostrils open. And like someone just steps on her hand and it breaks like this, this real feeling of, of, of like fragility here as anyone touches her. Um, and it's kind of like, they just ignore her. They don't see her, but she's so fragile and so breakable kind of like, uh, uh, bugs, bugs, mm -hmm. Matt, maybe, yeah. maybe being ignored and, and trodden underfoot. Yeah. 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 And it's interesting again, that Taylor's view of her treatment that of people treating her like this comes into play even before we see the trio of bullies get to her. Um, cause this, this fits what, what we know about her, that she kind of felt this way about herself before she had to go through this experience with these three. And they just kind of sensed that weakness in her and exploited it. 
Um, mm-hmm. and, and so, so here she's ripped apart and broken. And that is when they descend upon her. And like, we're reliving these moments and in, in a terrible possible way, but also we're getting to see, you know, maybe into Taylor's psyche a little bit as, as we do that, like, this is how she sees herself in these moments. And it's tough. Yeah. That's really interesting. Cause it is like a, a chronological series of, of the worst things that have happened to her. And, yeah. and you're right. Yeah. The first thing that happens is not, Oh, there's the three bullies. The first thing that happens is like the indifference and casual violence of strangers, basically. Yep. So yep. Hmm, interesting point. Um, yeah. So she, she realizes as, as she's being beaten by the bullies that she should give up. Um, but instead, because she's tailored, she, she searches for a weapon and she knows there's some weapon that's supposed to be there. She's supposed to have it. And, and that, and that forces her to break through briefly so that she's able to perceive the world outside a kid in his stomach through her bugs. Um, and she sees Echidna clambering up toward Tattletail, who is backing off and defending herself with a, with a handgun. Um, yeah. And then, yeah. Yeah. And this solves another problem that I was thinking about as we finished up last week, that how with Taylor inside Echidna, can we see, can we be observing the things that are happening on around her? And of course it's through her powers. Of course it makes sense. Mm. And, and I want to kind of get a little, writer nerdy here for a bit um because you can kind of imagine wild Bill getting to this point in the story and realizing that uh, a he wants taylor to get eaten and have these visions and have like an insight into her psyche and and what happens when people are inside echidna um but b he wants to have this battle between tattletale and echidna to happen he wants the audience to be able to observe this but how how can you do both because the rules of our book say um we have to be in Taylor's point of view unless we're like in an interlude chapter or uh, an interlude arc. And that's not where we are here. So, so you're presented with this problem. How do you do this? And a good writer can see this problem and come up with a solution that doesn't break the rules of the book or the rules of the world. So again, we have, of course, Taylor, yes, she's incapacitated, but she can sense through her bugs. She can see and hear through them too. And while blind, she's been slowly increasing that ability and that power. So we have this, this clearly established thing that solves Wild Bo's problem here, and it makes the world feel, you know, a little, a little believe more believable than it normally yeah. would. Yeah, and it's also been established that like her, her clones can kind of strip her of control of her bugs, so so she can perceive through them, but she can't like yeah, help with yeah. the fight. And the, the, when I started going down this line of thinking, I kind of went down a rabbit hole a little bit here, Matt. But like in a in a normally published book, in just a normal novel. So you're writing and you get to this problem in this chapter and then you come up with an in-world solution to solve it and then you can go back and lay the seeds for that solution in earlier chapters so what so that the solution comes up naturally and feels real. Um, when you're publishing a serial you you can't do that. Wildbo couldn't do that. Like I'm sure he does do a little bit of planning beforehand. He has a general idea of where he wants a story to go, but the, the the minute little details that that cause a problem like this to arise uh, don't necessarily appear to you until you actually like sit down and write the thing. So not only does Wildbo have to find that in-world solution to the problem that doesn't break any of the rules, for it to be believable, it has to be something that was already previously established, maybe for an entirely different purpose. And... I think it's it's remarkable that he's able to do that like consistently that like there's these traps you can fall into in writing that he's able to kind of navigate around 
and not lose the realism of the world while still solving all his structural problems and and getting through and making a compelling story at the same time, all while doing this basically on the fly as he's going with no ability to edit. It's just it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Like stuff like this is is why all of my criticisms about narrative economy in web serials and this one in particular always have like a question mark attached to them because <laughs> because like um you, you can't necessarily you, you being you know the author you can't necessarily like make these these um kind of improvised things work unless you had a lot of space to to create a lot of possibilities right and and if you're if you're going to a maximum you know cutthroat story economy and only hitting the necessary beats that are necessary to this main through line of delivering this one emotional message, um, th- th- then you, you might leave out the, the, the room to play with this, these types of things and, and the, yeah. the kind of the, the sandbox feeling of like, well, okay, I have this problem. Let me see what, what have I created up to this point that I can use to solve that problem? Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's, it's actually a really fun way of, um, of telling a story because it allows you to get in the character's head and, and like you're thinking through the solution with them because you're aware of all of the possibilities that they're aware of. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And of course, I mean, whenever we're, you're talking about narrative economy in a story that's being published on the fly, it's, it's super easy to go back when a work is published and know exactly which beats were not necessary mm-hmm. for the overall story but you can't know that in the moment. So like I know Wild Bill's going back and he's editing the story and he's maybe going to take some stuff out he doesn't need or, or tighten some stuff up and all that. But when you're publishing on the fly like this, y- you literally can't do that. Like how do I know I'm not going to need this beat until the story is at its conclusion? You just don't. And yeah. And yeah so like the fact that he's able to do this is again, remarkable, like remarkable. I can't, I can't, like he's so good at setting up and paying off and and making setups that weren't even for that payoff become part of that payoff. Yeah, no, that's that's, that's completely true. I, I I could I could go on about that for quite a while, and it's I think one of the more hidden, you know, less obvious strengths of the format. Um, but uh, we'll just maybe we'll just remember to bring that up when it becomes yeah. relevant. Yeah, and I think the most important thing about this to to tie it all back is is that the average reader probably isn't going to notice that, but it like it's, it works on them anyway. Like it's like, this is, this is a detail that makes the story feel more believable and you, and you might not notice that it's happening, but it's, it's, it's working behind the scenes to make the story work. So why did I like the section so much? Why did that, why did this moment with Taylor trapped in here and, she can see what's going on out there with her bugs. Why did that feel so like fulfilling narratively to me? Well, because it was set up well and it paid off well and it was realistic and it didn't break the rules of the world and it did all these things that Wild Bo had to do behind the scenes to make it work. You might not notice that, but that's what's happening. Yeah, I'm going to attempt to make a really strained analogy to to different types of video games and how <laughs> like a more traditional book is more like a, a, an RPG where you're on rails and you don't really get to make choices. You're sort of been being fed the story. And a story in this format is more like a more open world RPG where there's there may be multiple ways of solving any given problem. 
um, that there may be multiple valid choices. You're not actually railroaded into making one particular right choice for any given problem. And, and it, it actually engages your creative faculties and your imagination a lot more when you're in that type of game, I feel. No, yeah, I think I think that that's not an analogy I would have gotten to on my own, but <laughs> I like it. I like it a lot. Good. All right, cool. So yeah, uh, Taylor is sucked back into the into the dream state inside Echidna, and she's back at school again, and she's flinching into a ball as the assault on her becomes more more tolerable um, for a moment until Sophia loops a noose around her neck, and then she's lifted off the ground and drawn strangling into the rancid locker. And this is, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, is this the first time we've, like, experienced her trigger event with her? Like, I know she talked about it, but I don't know if you've ever, like, had the scene play out um, yeah. for us. Yeah, I think it's something that she kind of flinches away from typically yeah. and, and avoids yeah. thinking about. Yeah, and the thing that really jumped out at me here was that as soon as, that, that moment that as soon as she gives up and stops trying to fight back, everything becomes more tolerable to her. And this this calls back to early book Taylor and an early book Taylor's opinion that fighting back against her bullies just made everything worse. That that standing up to herself, just standing up for herself just caused them to pick on her more. And this is a very early book Taylor thing that we're seeing right now in this flashback memory thing. And it's, it's kind of crazy because it allows you to directly contrast that taylor with today's taylor and how they're so different now like it's yeah it, it allows you to see how much she's changed over the course of this book so far yeah i mean that so that i've never i've never like realized this before but like if you took this taylor and shoved her in the equivalent of a tampon locker which which is basically something that's happened to her like 15 times like like yeah. she's right now she's in like a giant monster's gullet um, she never even comes close to like having a freak out episode. She is always like at worst, she's like probably going to die here. I'm getting a little worried. Um, but usually it's just pure Taylor's toolbox, like, like, like rationality and, and like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm panicking. I need to calm myself down. But the, the Taylor that went into that locker is not the same person that came out of it. Yep. I almost feel like Taylor's toolbox was born in that locker along with her power. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. I don't know. That that, that never occurred to me before now. So I'm I'm in love with my with my thought now. Yeah, no, I like that a lot. That's very that's very good. So um she she snaps back um she snaps back to the bugs and she can see outside again and she's seeing Tattletail hitting Noel with a grenade. <laughs> um but then she snaps back into into the nightmare and and the setting has shifted and she's she's facing mannequin in a factory her and then back hits. outside. Yeah, yeah, right. It's all of her worst slash best moments. And then back outside, Tail has handcuffed herself to something while her other wrist is being sucked into Noelle's mouth by a giant tongue. That's so gross. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. And then, and, and meanwhile, uh, Rachel sends three of her giant dogs against Echidna, who starts absorbing them and basically just adding them to her enormous mass. I was really concerned about the puppies at this point the first time I read this. Like, I yeah. was very scared for them. Yeah, me too. And then back in the dream again, we're just kind of flipping back and forth fairly rapidly. Um, she she tries to fight Mannequin to keep him from killing her loved ones who are who are kind of all all there, um, but she can't, um, and she's overcome with with this bottomless rage, and and she's surrounded and, and Bonesaw and Jack and, and Bakada show up. 
Yeah. Yeah. So not only are we hitting that uh, Taylor's greatest hits album stuff, but we're distorting those events to match with her mindset Um, because this fight with mannequin Taylor won, like she beat him here. Um, But you remember her mindset was that she didn't that by buying time to, to let her plan out, people got killed and it's all her fault and she couldn't take that victory. So in her mind, that's what happens. We see her fail. We see people die. Her father specifically, she puts her father in this position, even though he wasn't really there because she feels like the choices she's made has, has, has failed her father. And it's like, God, it's so, it's, it's so tailored. Like it's so tailored. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting because we're, there's i guess there's a couple of possible interpretations like one of them is that this is what she's choosing to torture herself with and another is that like well obviously part of the echidna power is this ability to like basically flay your psyche and create a evil version of you and part of that is probably involves like okay what makes this person tick what's their worst fears and and all that so so it's it's a it's echidna's power doing this to her sort of in a in a psychic sense but 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 of course these these are elements that are there to be manipulated in the first place right yeah i i don't think from what i've seen at least and my interpretation of it is not that i don't think echidna's putting anything there that wasn't there already she's just Mm -hmm. whatever it's doing is just enhancing the thoughts and the feelings and the trauma that was already there and just making it worse yeah that feels right so, so back outside, uh, Rachel has been overcome by bugs from the uh, from the other skitters, the clones, um, and she sees a much larger echidna ordering a regent to go set Shatterbird free. Oh, good. That's that's great. This is let's just add, add yeah. more shit to this shit sandwich. Yeah, this isn't bad enough yet. Um, so then she, she sees a duo of skitters politely coordinating with with each other to kill Tattletail, <laughs> um, and uh, and th- so so this is. If anything, this is where we start seeing a little bit of that focus on Tattletail. Right. Um, because uh, basically the, the skitters are, are like personally angry at her. And, and basically they're saying, uh, um, you're awfully fond of keeping secrets for someone who calls themselves Tattletail. Keeping secrets, keep, keeping secrets from me, even at the best of times, even though you knew what I'd gone through. Um, and, 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 they, and the skitters continue to needle her about not sharing her trigger event with, with them. Yeah, and and this is a tattletale arc, seemingly, right? So we're laying these these we're laying the groundwork here in this moment where we're we're reestablishing the fact that hey, like there's been moments where uh, Lisa has hinted stuff about her past that Taylor's kind of confronted her on about why haven't you told me about this yet? And Lisa's kind of deflected and said later I'll t- I'll tell you later I promise just trust me for now. And you can see th- represented through her clones that this is something that on some level does really bother Taylor and we're getting to see that through her turned up to 11 crazy evil clones. But, um, that's, that's a, that's a, a, a not so subtle reminder of this kind of, uh, tense conflict between the two. That's, that's kind of under the surface, but it also, it also starts this road of we're going to mess with Lisa's head a little bit here because like she, they're about to start like screwing with her and she like attacks, like orders Bentley to attack, immediately to to try to stop them from it um so it, it's it's pretty obvious to me that we are setting up this reveal of lisa's trigger event i think before the end of the arc we're going to get that obviously it doesn't happen in this half so i it's got to happen in the second half but that seems to be the the the, the path we're treading and we're going to continue to hit this beat again and again we're reminded about the things that 
that are questionable about Lisa and and as we see her behave more and more unusually throughout this this section. Yeah, I always like to pay attention in, in moments like this where where Lisa is she does have Rachel here, but Rachel's kind of incapacitated and 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 she only has like a, a couple dogs um, that she is she, like her power is not really a, a, a very useful like combat power. So she's little more than like a normal person with a gun yeah. in this situation. And, and she keeps putting herself in these situations. So, I mean, we've we've never gone fully down the rabbit hole talking about why Lisa does this to herself. Um, like like sh- a couple of times she's tried to be the one who's like, I'm just going to be on the laptop and you guys are going to be in the field. And that never lasts long. She always ends up in the field again, putting <laughs> yeah, herself into yeah. terrible danger. Um, so that's just, I got, that's, that's more of a thing to pay attention to than a, um, than a statement for now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So she, speaking of the dog, she orders Bentley to attack one of the clones and then she shoots the other one. But the Gru uh, uses his darkness to teleport her away before Tattletail can finish her off. And, and we see that this Gru has, it, like, his darkness um, does the teleportation basically. Yeah. I, I don't know if we talked about this before, but the idea of the clones having this slightly enhanced version of Cape powers is not only really cool, but very thematically consistent to everything we've done before. Because if we assume that the idea with the evil clones is their, their people's traumas and people's insecurities turned up to crazy levels, um, then it makes sense that, their powers would be cranked up as well and changed as well. Because as we've said time and time again, trauma and the superpowers are inextricably linked. They're, they're one and the same. They're, they feed off each other. So that makes sense. And it, it of course, it's like, it, it's, it's a fun, interesting twist on powers, but something that again, makes sense within the context of the story. Yeah. And we also have this, this notion that the, that the passengers on some level, are are rewarding um re- either either rewarding or, or giving some kind of reinforcement to to either being in bad situations or being in situations similar to the trigger right. event and and these clones are basically in the worst possible frame of mind all the time so yeah yep. that makes sense so yeah um skitter can sense miss militia leading a squadron of capes into the base at this point and shatterbird shows up uh just as miss militia opens the door and Tattletail tries to, to shout for Miss Melissa to shut the door, but it's too late. Shatterbird gets her her scream off. <sighs> Shatterbird. <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't have, like, you know, kidnapped her and just left her in their base the entire time. Maybe yeah. not. Yeah, that was almost a Chekhov's gun that was sitting there for so long that you forget about it. Because, like, f- from the moment they captured Shatterbird, at least I was like, oh, this isn't going to go well. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, th- she, she's a weapon of mass destruction that they have on this leash. And you know, like... If Regent gets knocked on the head, she's free and, and is just going to kill everyone. Right. Um, and yeah, they we were just, they were definitely playing with fire there. Yeah. I mean, like it, it was only a matter of time. You're absolutely right. And of course, in in classic worm fashion, the time is the worst possible time. Yeah, yeah, and, and it, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So back in the dream, Taylor is surrounded by the nine and Bakura and Panacea for good measure. I am fascinated by the fact that Taylor puts herself in this situation where she is surrounded by all of her enemies and she puts Amy on that list. Why, why do you think that is? That's very interesting. Yeah. I'm not, I mean, the, the first thing that jumps to mind is just that she was 
in that situation involving Jack and Bonesaw and Panacea yeah, and the sarcophagus. Be. But but I, I I agree that it's probably more complicated than, than that. Well, um, because because Knight is there as well and Bakuda is there as well. So it's not just simply replaying these events. It's just we're bringing all these other people into it as well. Uh, people that she's defeated. And it's just very, very interesting. And I couldn't quite crack, you know, what does this say about her view of Panacea? Um, it doesn't seem to be good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe she does view her as like an adversary on some important level that she doesn't consciously kind of think about. Yeah. I don't know. It, yeah. It's that I, 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 you definitely notice that and you're like, what does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's cool. Um, and, and someone grabs her uh, at this point, but it, it's Weld and, and she, she's slightly confused um, and, and is, is, is telling him to, uh, you know, to, to run. Um, and, and he, but it, of course it's real Weld and he's pulling her out of a kid in the stomach and carries her over his shoulder. Um, and then the entire, the entire rest of the book takes place in this dream, uh, inside a kidna. <laughs> Super Mario too. Yeah. Just all a dream. It's a deep cut for people. Spoilers. Out there. It's a deep cut. Yeah. That's, it's a, the game's like 30 years old it can't be spoilers anymore um no i i love this moment matt i i really do because like for a fraction of a second you can kind of see dream taylor putting weld on her list of opponents like she's surrounded by all these bad guys so you see weld and you're like oh is she seeing weld as another bad guy that's attacking her um that's gonna beat her up too but no weld's there to rescue her and her first reaction to seeing Weld is to tell him to run, to try to help him, to tell him to get away. And it's like, like so this is a wonderful hero moment for Weld as he like carves into Noel and pulls Taylor out. But at the same time, you see like Taylor's initial reaction here is, Weld, run, get out of here, go. And it's just like, oh, you're, you're good, Taylor. You're good. Yeah, it's really a wonderful heroic moment for this character as he's literally digging around inside this monster. <laughs> um, I mean, he does have a certain like degree of, of not immunity per se, because obviously she can still hurt him. Yeah, um, it, it, yeah, it's it's cool. Um, yeah, so the the two skitters are giving the heroes hell, and Skitter can't commandeer the bugs from them, although they do sense her trying to. Uh, they also take the opportunity to tell Weld all the terrible things she did, including killing Calvert, uh, just before Imp has a chance to shut up that skitter with her knife. <laughs> uh, oops. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, that's a, that, yeah, we did that. Uh, yeah. And of course, this is all like perfect. We see skitter literally attacking herself for all of her failures attacking herself for all of her terrible choices uh, attacking herself for leaving people to die for for failing people for killing people it's everything that i wanted out of the idea of having a skitter clone of her just like confronting herself um it's almost as if like a kid in the ate taylor and pooped out like a physical manifestation of her compartmentalization only like it can talk and therefore tell other people about all this stuff that she's struggling with on the inside. Yeah. You could probably learn a lot about yourself by finding out what angle your clone chose to take and yeah. Yeah. Tearing apart your life. Yeah. And it's because of course Taylor has been doing this internal conflict for the entirety of the book. She's been fighting with herself. Um, and, and now we get to see it in the real world physically manifested. It's yeah. just, it's just a fun, I, it's a fun beat. 
Yeah, I think it's always interesting, like how there's sort of a subtle moral equivalence that is that she's that she's doing where she'll mention something like she'll say, like, I carved out a man's eyes. And it's like, okay, you're talking about the time that you cut out the eyes of the regenerator super monster cape who was trying to kill you, um, which he just healed back eventually. Yeah. And then you're and then you're equating that with shooting a man in the head when he was on his knees. (laughs) Um, yeah, it, it's yeah. It, it's like she's such a complicated character, right? Because like yeah. in the time, she made that completely justifiable. Like like when when she cut out Lung's eyes, you and I were both like, oh, Jesus Christ, that's holy <laughs> shit. Um, but but to Taylor in that beat was like, I have to do this. Like it's okay because he's going to regenerate. Blah blah blah. But then after the fact, she looks back and says, Oh my god, I can't believe I cut out a guy's eyes. That's like, well, <laughs> what are you what are you doing? Like. Like it's, it's this, this, like she's a a walking contradiction almost. And it's, Uh it makes her such an interesting character. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, well, well goes back and keeps digging around in a kidnap for more people. Um, so yeah, we, we had this, we, (laughs) I I don't know if it's specifically highlighted to us, but like we, we know that Weld's power sort of makes him, it puts him in this confusing place regarding the Manton effect such that I, I think it might be safe to assume, don't quote me on this, it could be wrong, that Echidna can't really copy him due to his nature. Yeah, um, I think so that's, that's why he's able to do this safely. Yeah. yeah. Have we confirmed exactly how his power is just ignoring the Manton effect? Like, I know we get a deep dive into the effect later in this section, but I don't recall if we've, like, confirmed how he or maybe Case 53s are specifically just ignoring this, like... I don't think that's been confirmed for us, but I just, I couldn't remember. Okay. Um, I guess that's a tough question for you to <laughs> answer. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm just going to say, I don't think, and if people out there that are reading can answer that without spoiling anything for me, um, please do. Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping that I didn't just spoil you. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm going through my brain going like, wait a minute. Do we, do we know that he has, we know that he of... ignores the, the Manton effect. Yeah. Okay. Cause one of my speculations is about how exactly yeah, like, I think that. I think what we know is like his body counts as as non-organic to powers that affect organic things, and his body counts as as organic to things that affect non-organic things. Yeah, that's and so correct. it's just like a, it's just like a trick, basically. But yeah, um, we don't know like why that is or how that happened or how that yeah. works exactly. We just know that that's the case. Yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. All right. Cool. I'm, I'm not freaked out anymore. All right. The Telltale um, tells Rachel to keep feeding her giant dogs to Echidna. And, and she does so, um, which is actually somewhat surprising. Uh, Skitter realizes that the dogs are getting stuck in Echidna, um, but Echidna is also getting stuck on them, which she directly connects to like how you can get Weld hung up by getting him stuck to metal things. So the, the extra mass that they're adding to her is actually hampering her in this situation. Yeah, and it's it's a really clever plan of Tattletales, and it's, but it's also like insanely risky and requires this like, huge amount of faith in Lisa that Rachel has to extend that putting her dogs intentionally in harm's way. And I think this is just a huge character moment for, for Rachel here that she is willing to work along with Lisa enough and trust her enough to put her dogs in harm's way here, um, for this plan that she wasn't a hundred percent sure on. Yeah. Right. That's what's kind of surprising is, um, Lisa is normally, not quite this fast and loose like you're exactly right because in in a few in a few moments she she kind of admits like 
yeah, I don't really know what's going on. For all I know, she could just keep getting bigger and bigger. And, <laughs> and, and, and so it's like, okay, yeah. so this was, uh, I mean, if anything, you're like testing your theory here by risking Rachel's dog, which she knows better than to do. So yeah, it's, it's really setting all this stuff up. Yeah. Well, and, and it is it, on that side. And then on the other side is that the Rachel has the trust in her to, mm-hmm. to just say, okay, is kind yeah. of crazy. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's an evolution of her character. Yeah, no, you're, you're exactly right. So Skitter is sort of like useless because of the fact that she's feeling extremely sick and she hypothesizes that this is because her body is harboring mutant strains of mold and bacteria now. That's such a, a classic Taylor conclusion to reach. Um, yeah. But it's it's a really fun little beat that I never even thought of um, that, that that, of course, if if Noelle is sucking everything else inside her. Um, she's going to suck in bacteria and, and viruses as well. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of how her, her skin was prickling. Uh, that was the first manifestation of her power. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. I bet that was just microbes. Yeah. You're probably right. Yeah. Yeah. So Rachel bodily carries Skitter out of harm's way and helps her throw up. I hope we don't get contact flagged for that, but <laughs> it was worth it. It's freaking bodyguard moment. God, I love these two characters so much. Yeah. Yeah. But, it's, it's very cinematic, you know, yeah. the image. Not that you want to <laughs> see someone throwing up, but like Rachel carrying her friend. I just so want, th- I just want everyone out there to know that I thought about just seeing that moment instead of pulling the clip and I <laughs> saved you all. <laughs> so you're welcome. Yes. I mean, it would have been great either way, Scott. So it, <laughs> no. it, 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 <laughs> so Echidna spits some clones uh, at them, uh, including including some dog clones. And these dog clones are, are normal size, even though they're, you know, twisted as usual. Um, and then and then Rachel orders Bentley to kill the dog. And 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 he does. He just crunches it fairly quickly. And then we get this moment of, uh, yeah, Rachel said her voice low enough that only I heard it feels wrong. <laughs> Which is, of course, a callback to when when Taylor said that about killing the humans uh, yeah. last arc. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like sometimes we sound like broken records on here and talk about I feel like every week I say, I love how Wildbow fits all this characterization stuff in places that we never would expect it. But here it is again, that it's a specific callback. It's wonderful. The idea that Rachel like seemingly had no problem killing any of the human clones. But now we're killing dog clones and suddenly, yep, it, it feels wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. She's uh, humanized the, the dog clones. What's the word for that? I'm sure there's a word. Uh, canon, canonized, canon, canon, canonized, canonized. Yeah. <laughs> that works on so many levels. So Tattletale explains <laughs> um, that the dogs are, are normal dogs surrounded in dead flesh, like z- zombie dogs, basically. So, so that's why, that's why the dead flesh stuck to Echidna. But then when she produced the clones, they were only normal dogs, which makes perfect sense and is in line with what we've been led to believe about Rachel's power. Yep. Once again, this is an example of a wild bull having fleshed out the world enough, um, that you can just do things like this and have them make sense and not have to explain them in too much detail. Yep. So then, uh, well digs out grew also and, and, and another dog and he goes back for more. Echidna is finally incorporating all the dog flesh into her mass and she's like three times bigger now and she starts vomiting out tons of clones um, and Miss Militia guns them down indiscriminately and then finishes them off with a flamethrower. Oh my God. And, 
finally Weld gets everyone free and the good guys retreat. It's it's a it's a victory. S- sort of. Yeah. S- sort of. Yeah, and then in the hallway, of course, Clocklocker and Kid Win, our two favorite people, are like badly lacerated and bleeding everywhere uh, due to due to Shatterbird's power. Yeah, I, I don't know about you, but like out of everything we've seen so far in this fight, this part is the one that hit me the hardest because it's like at this moment you're like, oh god, Clockblocker and Kid Win like could die here. We've seen what the glass does to people and how much it hurts them, and they weren't even in the fight; they were just running down the hallway, and then like they got screwed and and could die and you're like i I don't think they're going to but it's it's just this beat hit me harder than i thought it would um and i i want to talk about like we kind of aired away from a little bit but like how much are the undersiders responsible for that in this moment because like it's it's shatterbird's fault like shatterbird did this but they kept her they kidnapped and used her they had her in this uh, in this cell where they brought Noel to. So like, don't they, don't they ha- own some of the responsibility for this here? Or am I being I, a little too critical? I mean, it's interesting because it's not something that occurred to me, but I think you're not being too critical because like you, you can imagine like this could have been much worse and, and indeed it, it could become much worse in terms of what Shatterbird could could do if free and it's like yeah they had they absolutely had the chance to put her to, you know to send her to the birdcage to just execute her to to, to solve the problem basically they, to solve the problem of this psycho with this incredibly destructive power and 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 a desire to use it and instead they were like including taylor we're like oh no we need the firepower yeah um yeah. And, and they even had conversations where like i said earlier like if regent gets knocked unconscious which is something that could totally happen in a fight Right. Yeah. Everyone screwed, and and they 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 had this risk running the whole time. Um. So yeah, I think they're totally culpable for for any any damage that that Shatterbird does at this point. Honestly, I I, I do like. Yes, Shatterbird did this attack, but like she shouldn't have been here at all. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's fair, and I, I yeah, I I don't know if we're gonna get some disagreement among people, but yeah, I think when you when you take that person and you use them and bend them towards your will then their actions from that point on uh, have some you have some responsibility over them yeah sure for sure i mean i don't think it's a stretch because like the, the the terrifying thing is that taylor is the most ethical of the undersiders and we know that <laughs> ethically she's uh severely compromised yeah yeah so so that's the level of like thinking through these types of th- of concerns that, that we're getting from this group of, of violent minded teenagers. So, yeah. 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 So, yeah. So, so yeah. Uh, Echidna is now enormous. Uh, her movements shake the structure as she moves through it, but she's too big to get out through the door now. So the undersiders are, are dragged outside and propped up against a wall while Echidna is kind of struggling to get out. Vista is still unaccounted for. And Tattletail knows that the teleporting grew is still inside and can probably help Noel get out. So Tattletail is going to detonate the whole base on top of on top of Echidna and potentially on top of uh, Vista. And Miss Militia stops her from doing it. Um, I'm not going to read this whole interaction, but but basically Tattletail is is once Miss Militia takes the phone is saying, you know, you can finish putting in the code or you can give it to me, and that way if Vista's still in there, your conscience is less muddy if not exactly clear and uh and miss miss militia um 
you know, kind of thinks it through and realizes that Shatterbird's also in there. And, and she says, I won't have a clear conscience no matter what I do, Miss Militia said, but I might as well own up to it. And then she finishes the, the code and, uh, and the building is demo- the, the building above the base is demolished and then it collapses downward. And then the base itself is detonated, which then caves it in. And we end up with just a, a depression where this building used to be. Um, and, and as Miss Militia has the whole crater foamed over, Tattletail guesses, presumably using her power, that, she, that they have about an hour uh, until until Noelle gets out um, and and that she hopes the threat level will be upgraded now. <laughs> yeah, which, of course, we see that it is. Um, yep. But this is this Miss Militia beat is a start of a, a kind of a thing that carries through the rest of the section um, in that we see people taking specific responsibility for their actions. And I think this is this is perhaps, in my opinion, one of the most heroic moments we've seen Miss Militia have. Um, not because she's saving people, not because she's unquestionably doing the right thing here. No, she's she's playing in this this world of gray that everyone else is. But she makes this choice and she owns up to it and she takes responsible responsibility for it and all the consequences of it. And she takes that all on herself and she says, this is mine. I'm going to do it. No, I'm not going to let you. T- I'm not going to give the tattletale gives me an out. I'm not going to take it. I'm going to do this. I'm going to take this on myself. And this is something that's echoed here with Taylor in a bit. Um, and I think that's that's important and intentional. Yeah, I think we're seeing a lot of maturity. Like this is a much more mature way of dealing with the types of, yeah. of bad things. Because yeah. Taylor, you know, she's not dealing with, with the bad things that she has to do. Um, th- there are times when she has to do bad things to... Um, like, like, so for example, if you think about like when she had to play dead, um, so that mannequin left her alone, um, and and then he like went after other people that wasn't like, that wasn't the same thing as like attacking triumph and almost killing him. That was just like, Oh, I have to make, like, I have to make this terrible, painful sacrifice in order to actually do good. And that's the kind of thing that she like never lets go and will always feel bad about. She feels bad about about all of the bad things she's done, including the things that were like very justifiable. But Miss Militia, I think is probably, you know, she, she's older and I think she has this healthier understanding of like the, what it's like to have to grapple with these decisions. So she's a lot more sober, I guess, and, and, and aware of the decision she's making as she makes it. And I think that's a great thing to, to highlight. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we, we get this little moment, which we're going to get more of in a bit where Gru does not appear to be doing well. Um, he's just kind of leaning against the wall listlessly and he's basically just terrified and traumatized and kind of repeating himself. Yeah. Can we get a, can we get Jessica yeah, Yamada in here? Anyone? <laughs> Is she on call? We just get her over here. Yeah. I mean, I wish. <laughs> um, so yeah, as Skitter looks for somebody to help, she notices Weld and Mitch Militia chatting about Thomas Calvert. Uh Oh, so yeah, so let's just move right on to 19.2. Yeah. Um, we, we pick right up. Skater struggles to her feet, cloaking herself in bugs to go speak to the heroes. So she's literally, like she's feeling insecure about about like seeming weak and covered in vomit and, and injured. So she literally covers her, her insecurity with like a cloak of bugs. What a, what a normal, healthy <laughs> thing for a person to do. Jessica! Jessica! <laughs> So as she walks there, she feels like she's at school and her presence is repelling people. Um, and you're and you're kind of like, 
you're kind of like, no, no, Taylor, I'm sure you're imagining it. Um, yeah. It, it's, it's a fun little subversion of, of what we just saw in Taylor's dream where everyone was just ignoring her and now everyone's paying attention to her. And, and we see actually Taylor grab onto that specific just juxtaposition, in fact. And I, I, part of me kind of wishes that maybe this wasn't so explicitly called out that like, basically we have Taylor tell us exactly how we're supposed to feel and how this is different from school Taylor, but kind of also the same. And I don't know, maybe this is a really minor complaint that maybe we didn't need to just directly call it out and spell it out. But it's interesting that she's aware of it at all though. Cause I, I yeah, always think back true. to like when, um, arc, arc eight in, in, in tattletales POV when, when she's like, she's thinking to herself like it's it's so strange how skitter is always unaware of the fact that people are like staring at her out of the corner of their eye because she's covering the whole environment with bugs <laughs> um and and taylor indeed rarely ever pays attention to this fact and he or she actually notices people are like shying away from her yeah um which which is either i don't know it could just be because she's primed to notice it because of the experience she just had i think i think that's probably it that she's reeling mm. she's reeling from reliving all these traumatic experiences and so suddenly she's more observant towards how people feel towards her than she has been in the past yeah no she needs to put that right back in the compartment <laughs> oh oh i'm sure it'll go in there just yeah. not right now yeah and, and she does think to herself in, in you know analyzing it a part of me wondered how much of that was my reputation beyond Braxton Bay and how much was my innate creepiness it's both it's yeah. both Taylor you surrounded yeah. yourself in a bug cloak <laughs> so she thanks Weld for the rescue um and and he says Imp was the one who brought him in um and I have a hard time not quoting the whole exchange that follows catastrophic was the word Imp used Weld said when describing just what might happen if a clone got your power without any of your restraint, not to mention the issues posed by the psychotic Gruze, your clones could commit mass murder on the scale of hundreds and his threatened to lose us the battle. Yeah, this is a good beat. You're right. And it's, of course, absolutely true, because now I'm imagining evil clone skitter like driving around the U.S. randomly killing people like Taylor hypothesized about doing a few weeks ago. Um, yeah. And now suddenly we have the potential for it actually to happen. Right. And we know that she can go into lungs with her bugs and rip arteries open and can do that on a macro scale if she wanted to. Jesus. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah, Miss Militia admits that clones with her own power would also be pretty bad. Um, and then the, the rest of this exchange where, 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 uh, Taylor says, I take it. I have one of the tame powers. No, Miss Militia said, I wouldn't say that. There was a pause in the conversation. Yeah, and, and, and maybe I'm reading too much into this here, but this feels like Wildbo talking about some of the commentary about his work. Because um, I, I remember when you and me, the first episode of this podcast, I specifically said that Taylor's power doesn't feel like it would be that dangerous, um, which of course is not true at all. And so I wonder if Wildbo is kind of taking the Miss Melissa, Miss militia position in this exchange and and like saying to people that that thought this that like oh bug powers don't seem like they would be all that bad and saying no when i wrote these powers like i always thought that they would be the opposite of tame and and maybe he was kind of surprised that that people didn't think that or something i don't know it's that's me reading into a lot of stuff but that's fun in my head so yeah I mean, that, that makes that, that makes quite a bit of sense i mean i think taylor also doesn't really realize like like taylor from from arc one and 
apocalypse level Taylor with <laughs> with swarm clones and and constantly covered in in bugs and using them as diversions and killing people with them are are two very different points on the continuum. Yeah. Um, and and so you'd you'd be forgiven for not realizing what she's capable of in arc one because she's also not not aware of what she's capable of. Yeah, that's so, true. Yeah. But yeah, I like your idea that this is some some uh, some meta text. So she decides that she doesn't um, she doesn't want to live in a story where people don't tell each other things um, and and and, you know, basically having avoidable disasters because people won't talk to each other. So she decides to just open up and tell them that Calvert was Coyle and she fully explains what Coyle was doing and basically admits that she killed him without actually saying those words. Um, and then she tries to persuade Miss Militia not to tell her bosses about it because she thinks that Idolin is in on it. And Miss Militia isn't really buying it because she basically thinks Cauldron is a hoax and she suspects that Skitter is playing her. Yeah, I, this whole conversation is so great. Um, Skitter's rant about poorly written rom-coms with manufactured conflict uh, just because people refuse to sit down and talk to each other. This is like someone's like in my brain because I hate I hate that kind of manufactured conflict. And it feels like here again, I think I see Wild Bo coming through the page a little bit. Like, I think it makes sense that Taylor feels this way, but I just get the feeling that Wild Bo hates that kind of conflict as well. Um, and of course, I fully agree with it. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting because there there is a there is a completely legitimate reason not to tell the heroes that you murdered, um, you know, their boss. Um, but so this is in addition to being like a, a relief that we didn't decide to go down that track storytelling mm-hmm. wise and, and like meta wise. It's also it's also a nice bit of of Taylor being like the good the, the good parts of herself, yeah. like like yeah. the, the almost the almost naive in a good way, like like when Flechette accuses her of being naive. Um, it's like, yeah, I mean, this is this is sort of a naive, dare I say, Ned Stark move um, <laughs> where where it's like, look, I'm just going to lay all my cards on the table and and I trust I trust in the nature of people to do the right thing, which yeah, which is quite, um, 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 you know, I'll say it again. Naive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and to echo Miss Militia's beat from earlier on. This is Taylor taking responsibility for her actions. You know, mm-hmm. Weld gives her an out. Weld basically says, um, you know, like it, it could be possible that that the, the clones were lying to try to manipulate us because you do that all the time, which is a funny little beat on its own. Um, but she doesn't take it. She doesn't take that out that she's given and she takes responsibility. She comes clean. She tells them everything. Um, and it's it's refreshing. And I think in this moment, we're supposed to draw this connection between Miss Militia just doing it a few moments ago to Taylor doing it now. Because Miss Militia is, from the PRT side, like, we've we've seen so many of these people um, that have been corrupted and bad, like the whole triumvirate, arms master. But Miss Militia, so far, is this character who really seems to represent, like, the the best that the Protectorate could be. The, the potential of them, like we see that she's willing to work with Taylor at, at moments. She's not totally hard and rigid, but she's not like, like corrupted either. So like to draw a comparison between these two characters at these moments is, is so intentional to me. And I think, I think it's showing at least on some level, a little bit of growth in Taylor. Yeah. Miss Militia feels to me like, like one of our wards characters who grew up, you know, 
Right. Yeah. There, there's there's a continuity of that ethos of like I'm trying to do the right thing and I'm burdened down by this system, but I'm I'm still going to try to do the right thing. Yeah. Uh, so there's this there's this beat here uh, between Weld and Taylor, where they're talking about secret identities and and it's just planting the seed for what's going to come in a little bit because <laughs> what Weld says, uh, you know, it's something I'm interested in. I never had the benefit of a secret identity. Overrated, as far as I can tell. I told him. Yeah, and and like we've uh, like we've talked about so many times, you can do two things in one beat. So you're right. We plant the seed for Weld and his interest in the case 53s, the 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 truth behind all that. But then we also have this this beat with Taylor talking about because we we said a few a few arcs ago that I thought that Taylor was dead and Skitter had had taken over that Skitter was her identity now, um, and this kind of ties into that how like she doesn't even like she doesn't even have two identities anymore she's just skitter now and yeah like it, it's funny that it hap- it this beat happens right after a moment where i just said that i feel like taylor's grown some because this feels like okay she's grown in some ways <laughs> and not so much in others yeah right it's always it's always an exploratory process with her um yeah so in the end miss militia seems vexed uh that she has to be so paranoid she kind of almost like apologizes for having to be this way um and because it's it's not in her nature but she has to be careful to protect her people yeah and this is why i like miss melissa so much because you understand her in this moment i think you really do like the the stuff that she's being told is kind of crazy from a the outside perspective like briefcases and formulas and coil being the head of the prt and you didn't even notice and when you're in this organization when you're trusting this organization and been part of it for so long like being told that it's like completely and thoroughly corrupted is probably pretty hard to process and believe so you can understand why in this moment miss melissa like has a lot of trouble with this and and even though she kind of wants to trust taylor here she she has to be paranoid yeah, that's a good point that it's almost like intrinsically, it's like if, if someone came to like a police detective and we're like, you're the chief of police is actually also the mafia king. Yeah, You'd just right. be like, yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But my favorite moment in all this is when Skitter, as she's walking away, turns back and says, being in charge is hard. And this beat lands again, I think, because we've already spent the time to link these two characters and, and they're their choices to take responsibility for actions and be that leader's role and, and take responsibility when it's called for it sort of stepping up. And now we have this little beat here where they acknowledge each other as the leader of their separate groups and how much of a burden that leadership actually is on them. And it's this like mutual respect beat that I just love so much. And it makes me think like in a different world, maybe they, they would just work really well together on the same team, but I don't know if we'll ever get that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think through how long has Taylor been in charge, like officially. Not not that long, but I guess she's already yeah. had to make some some hard decisions and some some bad things yeah, have happened yeah. as a result of her decisions. So she's she's not talking out of her ass here. Um, I, I, I was like I was like, can she really say that? <laughs> but it's like, yeah, actually, I think she. I, I think, think she, she can because even if yeah. she hasn't been formally in charge, I think she's been in charge of the Undersiders for a long time. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. So yeah, Tattletail kind of swoops in and borrows Skitter and then they walk off and Tattletail flanks Skitter like a pace back, giving giving a subtle impression that Skitter is the one in charge. Yeah, it's a really cool moment and it's even more improved by the fact that Taylor 
uh, is aware of it and then comments on how scary Lisa can be. Not the same mm-hmm. as me scary, but a different kind of scary. Yeah. And and we're drawing this beat out because, again, this is a Lisa heavy arc and and it's her plan that has led us here. And it's her crazy plan that's going to drive the this, the story forward from here. And we've already had this beat where we reminded everyone that how secretive she is and how she keeps stuff even from her closest friends. Um, and now we have a beat where her her closest friend comments on how scary she can be and how she's like subtly able to manipulate things to change people's perspectives without anyone really noticing this. And again, we're just laying track for Tattletale's weird behavior going forward. Yeah, that's interesting that she she thinks of her as scary here. There's a few more moments in this arc where people specifically think of Tattletale and how scary she is, which is yep. something that that has been played on for the whole story really but it's it's definitely being uh, emphasized here yeah absolutely so yes she takes skitter to meet scapegoat and he's a healer sort of um with a really kind of interesting twist on that concept he, i really like the idea of his power and i think he's one of the only he- healers we've met toward uh, we've met other than panacea um yeah there was that one guy that worked for the nazi group but yeah, I, I think, think... Othala. Oth- yeah, yeah 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 you, you're right about that, that now. um yeah so so scapegoat um has this healing which is like fragile in some sense where you get better but the injuries come back and then they're slower to heal if you don't adhere to certain conditions for a certain duration so telltale then gives us this deep explanation for the power which is uh the first of many power kind of um digressions we're going to get in this in this arc scapegoat digs through parallel quantum realities to find unhurt versions of skitter and then swaps in pieces until they fit seamlessly so based on the theory of how Star Trek transporters work, this means Taylor is now dead and has been replaced by a copy. You just you just broke my my brain. <laughs> but isn't it cool here, Matt, how clever Wildpost being here? Because like uh-huh. in a few chapters, we're going to have Tattletail talk to us about multiple dimensions and how every time they use their power, they're tapping into these other dimensions. But we're spending the time here to lay the groundwork for that idea. So we we establish a new character who accesses other dimensions to remind our audience that that is a thing that exists in this world. So when Tattletale eventually reveals that it, it's not totally outlandish, but and and again, this is the kind of setup that that Wildbow does so well, and it's why the events of the book rarely feel completely out of left field or or totally outlandish, um, because if something new happens there's always some tiny beat that established the possibility of that thing happening in the story at some point. And I know we've said this multiple times in this episode, but I really want to hit this because it's, it's so well done and it's why you, you feel like the world is real and lived in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think the reason we're mentioning that so much today is that this arc, uh, utilizes that, um, that, that quality of the work uh, a lot. Yeah. And it's especially important in stories like this one, which are sci-fi or fantasy in nature, which take place in a world different from ours, where you have to clearly define these rules because they're not our rules. Um, Yeah. It's it's really good. Yeah. I I guess I have some comments more about this, but I'll I'll save them for um, when we get to more power discussions. So so, so Scapegoat's process of of healing ends and Skitter finds that she can see and and immediately we get... uh, She's fucking blind, scapegoat yelped, <laughs> which is which is the best moment ever. It really is. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a great way to reveal how scapegoats power works, 
but also we use it as a character moment to learn about him and his personality a little bit because he's like this guy who is exhausted by its power like it's so useful but it sucks for him so much yeah. and and you get a really good idea of of who he is as a person in just that one little line yeah right. i love this like dolorous ed type like uh and he's like i hate my power i hate my power <laughs> it's uh, so great yeah so yeah, but like you said, he's taken on all of her injuries in some form or another, and, and he's complaining. But Telltale mentions that she's paying him well, and Skidder wonders about this since she seems to be paying an awful lot of people an awful lot of money right now. Yeah, and, and we're hitting we're hitting those Tattletale beats. Like already, we have Taylor's concerns about the money. We we also know that she just like pledged to give a shit ton of money to Fault Lines crew, millions mm-hmm. of dollars for them to come to Brockton Bay and help out. So. Like we're getting this feeling that that Lisa might be just stretched a little too thin. Thin. She's trying to do too many things. She's trying to juggle so many different things, and she's maybe spending money she doesn't even have anymore. And like, we forget kind of that Lisa has been through just as much as everyone else because she's so guarded and secretive about like what she's going through, and she does such a good job of hiding it. But she's like gone through a whole lot of shit and seemingly we we haven't really seen the effect of that so maybe we're, we're seeming to get like this this weirdness in her behavior and maybe that's what it's linked to mm-hmm. yeah um so yeah she, she uh skater starts to to stand up off the ground um from being healed but tattletail stops her and and she says treat yourself like you're made of glass no heavy exertion don't get hurt don't strain yourself and, and it's possible that I'm reading too much into this, but having Lisa literally say, treat yourself like you're made of glass really just fits in too well with our running study of how Tattletale treats and thinks of Taylor. Yeah. And, and it might not, it may or may not be intentional here, but it absolutely does fit that. It, it's perfect. She's always been super protective of Taylor and this is a physical manifestation of that overprotective nature. Yeah. So they returned to the other undersiders, uh, grew, um, who Taylor first wanted to get help for and then completely forgot about uh, is basically unresponsive <laughs> and and like flinching when people touch him um, and like pulling his hand away when you try to to, to take his hand. And we're, we're reminded that you see variations of your trigger event and other traumatic events inside Echidna. So Skidder ultimately after kind of thinking about it um, and how, uh, how she wants to go with him, um, but she also kind of wants to be here so she she tells uh imp to take him home yeah this is a really really powerful moment and as much as is 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 powerful for Gru, the part i really loved was this interaction between imp and taylor here imp has been growing up a lot since we first met her i remember the first time we saw her she was the the girl who gave taylor shit uh and threatened to expose her her powers to everyone in the middle of this this apartment as the um, child protective services person was there and, right. and suddenly now we see this girl who at the end of the day respects taylor's decision who who's given it out taylor basically says i'll go if you really want me to but chooses to take responsibility again and take care of her brother and it is this really adult decision that we see in her and and there's kind of some lasting tension between the two they both like stare at each other each other's goggles because they can't actually see each other's eyes but they they look each other in the eye for a long time before the beat ends um and, and there's some lingering tension there maybe but like i it was a really great moment yeah yeah i i can't say anything more than that other than that i completely agree that this was this was kind of kind of harrowing and um 
like tactically it removes two of your strong you know fighters from the picture but that's not what you're thinking about you're thinking about you know the 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 sadness of this moment yeah and that's a big deal for taylor too to to willingly give up tools in her her toolbox yeah Um, yeah right but there's a there's a part here that i wanted to ask you about because like she's thinking about how she doesn't want to leave. She she wants, or she does want to leave. She wants to go with Brian. She wants to just hold him and help him. But then in this moment, um, she flashes back to the vision of helping mannequin, mannequin and the people she, uh, she cared about struggling to get to safety and how she failed them. And then remembering that was reassuring to her in this moment, um, which was kind of weird. I mean, what was your take on that? You know, I was thinking about this. Um, I'm not, I, I don't really have anything smart to say here, honestly. Like it, it, it's, it, it's like, I guess that that situation ended up kind of okay, even though she feels like she let herself down or, or maybe that she's been in this situation before in, in some form. I, I don't, I really don't know. My, my take on it, and I don't know if this is right, is that she's struggling with these two choices. She's struggling with, do I go with Gru? And do I help Gru or do I go and help all the other people that that if we if we put Noel in the role of mannequin in this moment, that that Noel is going to be rampaging and, and hurting people. And so the reassuring is not like I was reassured by the fact that I was failing people. It's remembering how bad I felt when I failed to help other people when they were being attacked by this evil cape reassured me and my decision. It, it focused me on what I need to do, which was stay here and fight. Um, and that's, that's what I got from it, but I don't, that could be right or wrong. I don't know. Yeah, that fits. That, that makes sense to me. Yeah. I'll, I'll go with that. Okay. Yeah. So the two sibling undersiders leave and Skidder notices the remainder of the triumvirate plus Meriden and Chalier. So I think we decided it's Chalier, even though I always want to say it Chalier. So I'm probably going to slip back and forth anyway. <laughs> I think it's um, fine. As they approach, Skidder notices a smile spreading on Tattletail's face. I felt a moment of trepidation. I'd seen that kind of smile. I'd seen it on Emma's face often enough just before she pulled something. It wasn't directed at me, though. I reached out for Tattletail's arm, but she was already speaking. Cauldron, she said, the word just loud enough for the heroes to hear. And from their reactions, she's using her power gets the information she's after that, that all three of the triumvirate know about it and are in on it. Man, what a great beat. Um <laughs> Not only does this line up with everything we've been setting up for Lisa so far throughout the arc, but the the fact that this reminds Taylor of Emma in this moment is like, is so wonderful. Like it's like, if you had any doubt that we're supposed to be seriously concerned about what Lisa is doing and the way Lisa is behaving so far, comparing her to Taylor's bully is like seals the deal. Like it's like, yes, you reader are supposed to be like holy shit what's going on with lisa right now it's it's so great it's such a brilliant way to do it yeah and i think she's compared her to emma in the past actually or or, i think you're right yeah 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 yeah, but but like yeah it's definitely the fact that it's coming here i also just want to emphasize like the ballsiness of of this and and the recklessness of it like it's it's like if you like if you were in a dc story where nobody knew about kryptonite and, and and it's and it's like effectiveness and some like weak you know teenage girl with with very mild powers like within earshot of superman were like kryptonite just to see how he reacted like it'd be like uh that's uh <laughs> yeah. yeah it's it's crazy yeah 
And and it's only the beginning, too. Like, she keeps doubling down on this recklessness. It just, oh, man. Yeah. And now for a word from our sponsors. Hey. Hey, everyone. It's Bob again. F- Fugly Bob? Times, uh, times have been pretty tough. You, uh, you remember that burger stand in Weymouth Shopping Center? Some little girl turned into a fucking gargoyle. Yeah, yeah, wings and all. Uh, so, so we've relocated again. I, uh, I dug down deep into my savings and I spent it all. I've made the finest fugly bobs this city has ever seen. Brand new grills. Seating for 200 people. Two-story floor-to-ceiling windows. Marble floors. Marble. We've got it all. Bob is back, baby, and Brockton Bay is coming with him. So come on down to Fugly Bob's and try our back-in-business special. A fugly-sized Bob special with fries and a... Shatterbird! What? What was that? Shatter? Oh God. Oh no, God, don't don't do this to me. I I was back. Bob was back. Ugly Bobs. Look for the large pile of shattered glass and condiment bins on the corner of Maine and Deacon. And we're back. So we're moving to 19.3, and Skidder is irritated with Tattletail for making this move, uh, blurting out the, the information about Cauldron with no clear gain in mind, at least none that Tattletail has told Skidder about at this point. So they argue, but Tattletail kind of shuts it down by saying to trust her a little. Yeah, and I'm on Taylor's side here. That while this was a really fun reveal, it it doesn't seemingly serve any purpose that we can see right now. And it, it, I think it's really interesting that we see how Tattletail goes out of her way to project Skitter as the leader of the group, but she's continually making decisions unilaterally without looping in her boss. She's just deciding to do these things, and when her boss tells her no, stop, she's just like, no, it's a, just just trust me. Just I got yeah. this. Um, it's yeah. really interesting. Yeah, and and it's like, on on some level, you're like, why, like like speaking for Skitter, like why sh- why why should I trust you? Why don't you just tell me what you're up to? Um, and, and I guess we we get the moment later where she's like, I will tell you. I'm just I want it to be an awesome mur- murder she wrote moment when I do tell you. <laughs> yeah, um, which is not entirely mature. It's but, insane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it turns out that Wanton survived um, the the radiation dose, but Raymancer probably won't make it. Um, so so Skitter tries to get Tecton's head back in the game after kind of having this this sad thing happen. Um, and, and she she also kind of mentally to herself thinks that he's naive for trusting that Murden might be able to help Raymancer. Yeah. And this is our start of getting into um, the part of the story where ta- Taylor like is seemingly bewildered by teams that operate, you know, normally <laughs> <laughs> like chain of command, mutual trust. What are these foreign things? I've yeah. never heard of these. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll see that. Yeah. That'll so, yeah. carry forward. Yeah. In yeah. a little bit. 
So Regent can't get a bead on Shatterbird, so she's either dead, out of range, or inside Noelle. And of course, this is Worm, so it's definitely one of the latter two. So, so, so Skitter wants to go retrieve Atlas, um, and Tattletail wants to go talk to Scrub and the Travelers. Um, so they first they do the the second errand. They find the Travelers foamed to the road. Um, and they're, they're being guarded by the San Diego wards, which includes a giant case 63 named Gully and two others who I don't, I don't know if we get their names. Um, and, and when they, when, uh, Gully and, and Tecton are, are talking and there's this like sense of camaraderie between them and, and, and friendly back and forth. And, and, and then Tecton, um, tells, tells her about Raymancer and Gully kind of offers like some genuine sympathy and Taylor thinks sympathy could be a horrible thing to give someone depending on who they were and how far along they were in their acceptance of the event. Um, and then she thinks about how uh, with something to distract myself, I could deal. I'd compartmentalize, refocus, <laughs> focus on getting the job done. Um, but, but, but a few touching words um, that, that would make me lose my composure is basically what she's saying. Um, and, and this is something you, you pointed out when you were doing your live tweet. Um, but it's like, yeah, you wouldn't want somebody to mess up your delicate compartmentalization <laughs> process, Taylor. Yeah. How, how dare they, how dare they do that? And yeah. I mean, it is true that sometimes someone showing you sympathy just does make you feel terrible, but that whole thing is dependent on the idea that losing your composure and feeling feelings is a bad thing, which is what Taylor seems to think here. It's like, like, this is bad. I can't feel things. I can't, I need to avoid this. I, I don't. Don't have sympathy on me. Don't actually care about how I'm doing, teammates. Thank God I don't have any of those people on my team. It's like, yeah. oh, God, Taylor. <laughs> right. Yeah. She, she's just like thinks she can keep it bottled up forever, basically. Yep. yep. Where's Jessica? Jessica? <laughs> Jessica? So, yeah, she, she she's noticing this genuine camaraderie and she's thinking, she's actually thinking like, I wonder if this is what it would have been like if I joined the wards. Yeah. And you know what? Until we saw that kind of camaraderie through taylor's eyes i hadn't fully realized that this is something that the undersiders just don't really have um they, they're definitely a team they look out for each other they work well together they interact like well together in a strategic sense but we don't see like very often like genuine like either concern or happiness like there's there's a moment in here where like i think it's gully that gets like temporarily promoted because uh, the the leader of the wards is it didn't come and like Tecton is like excited for her or something uh, or maybe it's it's the exact opposite but there's like they're genuinely happy for each other because they're advancing in the ranks and this is just like not the kind of conversations that happen in the undersiders at all yeah i think um it basically pre leviathan was the last time there was anything like this like right. I, I remember they had their their nice day shopping on the right, uh, the shopping right. district which is now completely destroyed and they've just been like trying to not get killed ever since then yeah i mean when's the last time taylor called these people her friends like yeah i no, can't remember point. i can't they're, remember they're, yeah they're her teammates right. and, and and they were her friends and she did think about them as her friends and she was like really happy that like when when lisa and brian were at her house and her dad saw her like you know, in a pile with them. And, and it was like, Oh, I'm so happy. I have friends. It's like, no, that's, that's not a priority. Right. You just gotta, gotta save Dinah and protect right. your, your people. And, and, and it's so crazy because like 
getting these friends and not wanting to lose these friends was the entire purpose of her, at least in her mind, of changing her mind and not betraying the undersiders and not becoming a hero and, and turning on them was because I like these friends and I want to hang out with these people more. And it's just like, you forget that we're so far removed from that world now that like she doesn't think about that anymore. I really yeah. wonder if we look back in detail and see when the last time she called an undersider her friend. I'm really curious about it. Yeah. Um, it yeah. was probably Rachel. Um, it was probably like Rachel when she was trying to like convince her not to hate her anymore. Yeah, no, I think you're right. That's that's almost certainly almost certainly right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they, they're talking to uh, ballistic and it turns out that ballistic and Sundancer were both pretty badly injured, uh, when trickster kept repeatedly teleporting them into the sky and dropping them. Oh, Krauss, <laughs> you really, you really went, went full in now, huh? Just yep. going to commit to your terrible wrong decision. Yep. That's, that's him. That's our bud. Um, <laughs> telltale tries to talk to scrub, but he's not responding. Um, I'm not sure why exactly he's not responding. Yeah, this felt that that beat confused me a little bit because we've heard him talk before. Yeah. Um, right when he got his powers, he talked. When he got his powers, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wasn't sure what that was about. I mean, I think we'll, maybe, maybe, we may find out, but I don't remember. So she waits around to see the effect of his power on surfaces. Um, <laughs> and we get that moment where Taylor's like, okay, what is this about? And, and she's like, can't you just play along? I love these murder she wrote moments where I can pull everything together. I put, pull everyone together, then dish the info. Everything makes sense. The puzzle pieces fall together and things start falling into place. We lose all the effect if I reveal some of it early. Matt, we're on a clock. Like, <laughs> Noel is coming. Like, they have, it's not like they're just like hanging out in the city. Like, life or death scenario is happening and, and Lisa is just like seemingly playing games and having fun. And it's such, it's so weird and off putting. And like it, it, you're just kind of flabbergasted. Yeah, I know. It's it's moments like this. You're like you're like, wait a minute. How much of how much of her like grinning all the time is her putting up a facade, and how much is just her being unhinged? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So yeah, finally, Scrub, you know, accidentally hits the road itself with his power, and Telltale asks Gully to use her power to lift the affected section out of the ground and telltale shows how the sphere that was affected by the power has been replaced, transplanted somehow with a similar, but not quite identical material. And then she goes on to explain some stuff about passengers and dimensions and the Manton effect. And, and she's, she's um, basically explaining something about how the powers tend to work by moving stuff or energy between dimensions. <laughs> um, so, so she's like, she's talking about Sundancer, um, and she's saying, uh, when Sundancer superheats her immediate area, she's not, uh, she's doing what Scrub does and shunting a roughly human shaped patch of superheated hair and fire into a parallel earth, shunting room temperature air into her immediate surroundings. <laughs> and then Wanton asks, uh, doesn't that mean that they'd be causing destruction on some hapless world? Good question. Tattletail grinned. Yes, probably. Could be that every time Sundancer's power protects herself. She's setting the approximate location of her Earth, uh, of uh, her other Earth, on fire. Uh, nothing saying that uh, other Earth is populated, but it could be. I can't stop imagining <laughs> a, a human-sized fireball appearing every time she uses her power, and just be people sitting on their couch watching TV, and then <laughs> suddenly, <laughs> what the fuck is happening? Yeah, um, yeah but this is. 
amazing. And I like, again, we've talked about how I don't get really into the nerdy sci-fi part of it, but thematically the idea that just by using your powers, our characters are just like fucking killing people on some alternate earth that they didn't know about. Um, is just so thematically fulfilling with like themes and choices and everything we've been talking about consequences of your decisions that you can't see and aren't always clear just by using this power that you have it's so wonderful it's so thematically rich i like it so much yeah right it's like it's like people have thought about maybe where the powers come from but it's like potentially where the powers come from is so horrific that you don't even want to know yeah yeah and of course, yeah, so, Tattletail says this with a, a grin on her face. Right. Yeah, totally. So she she also posits that the passengers might indeed be huge um, in order to do the kinds of things they need to do in terms of matter and energy manipulation and computation. Because, um, you know, you, you think of them as being like small, like like fitting inside your head small, but there, there's no reason that's the case. Yeah, which is something I think that we already kind of knew, kind of. Um, well, at least we knew that these, the the big entities that split off into all these passengers were massive. So maybe it's all part of one big thing um, Mm -hmm. is kind of what we're saying here. Yeah. So Skitter's annoyed that Tattletail took them on this errand for no good tactical reason. (laughs) So, so Tattletail adds like, Oh yeah. And you know, the reason we're actually talking about this is that uh, I think Echidna has a broken or demented passenger that's missing some of the usual limitations and maybe they can take advantage of it. Um, and she also thinks that Pretty they can thin. use, yeah, right. And then, and then, of course, the real reason, which is that she wants to use this knowledge to tear a hole between worlds. <laughs> what the fuck are you doing, Lisa? Like you have like, she's like, just so reckless, so irrational, just like is is so convinced that this path she's taking is the right one, and she's convinced herself that she's right, and it's just like, oh my god, like what a perfect way to end the chapter. Yeah. Yeah. And then we go to we we, we take a break from uh, from that, let that simmer, and we go over to nineteen dot x uh, Ray, aka Blasto, shows up at a meeting with our good friend Accord. So Ray's mask is like a fungus that looks like a normal face, but it's not his face. And Accord's mask is like an intricate contraption that conforms to kind of match his expression, um, which I think is interesting because they both have masks that conform to their faces although they're like one is mechanical and one is organic so it's like they're similar but but dark mirrors of each other yeah totally blasto (laughs) stupid name (laughs) so we enter and the building is full of accords signature immaculate style and other perfectly manicured capes in stylish costumes turns out that the nazis destroyed blasto's lab and Accord will be bailing out Blasto in a sense, letting him find his uh, find his feet, provided he stays completely out of Accord's <coughs> Accord's way, and basically tries as hard as he can to just not exist. Yeah, and I like Accord, and I know I was critical, kind of 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 this that beat with Mars walking in, and she has to die because she walked in a room, and I felt that was a little weird. But I do really find the character interesting, and I like him here, and I like that this kind of shows that we're we're not done with him yet. We're going to get more of him. Yeah, yeah. So Accord takes him down to the basement uh, to his new laboratory. And it's it's a dream. It's perfect. It's just the kind of thing that that Accord would make. And Blasto immediately knows he's going to soil it. <laughs> Accord mentions there are some special samples that Blasto would be interested in in the computer. Uh, so he checks those out when Accord leaves. 
And among the data is a slightly degraded copy of the PRT database. I suppose we're meant to wonder if this is what uh, the undersiders stole, um, yeah. including an, an entry on Blasto himself. And we learned that apparently a kill order is pre-authorized if his creations are able to self-replicate. Yeah, and, and a great character beat for Blasto is that he's aware already of that kill order. Um, so he like stopped making his creations self-replicate. But he like kind of did it annoyingly. Like he's like, oh, fine, I won't yeah. do that anymore. And it's like right. we're setting up this kind of mad scientist guy pretty early on. Yeah, yeah, I, I like his character. I like how he's sketched out. So he doesn't get much uh, insight into the triumvirate in the database. Those entries are just not present. But he finds a wealth of details about uh, Chevalier, uh, and it, it it triggers that special kind of tinker inspiration where he he can see something in Chevalier's power that he can replicate in his own biotinker way via his own path. And then also included among the samples is a fragment of a Seamurg feather. Yeah, it was about time, uh, this time in the reading, where I started to freak the fuck out. <laughs> biotinkers are bad. Biotinkers are bad. Let's not <laughs> screw with them. They're evil. They shouldn't be them. They should just go away. No more. No. No, you're wrong, Scott. It's it's all tinkers. <laughs> um, so so uh, basically... Blasto is being like minded by a, a series of uh, of the ambassadors, which are which are uh, Accord's gang. So this one, Citrine, engages him in conversation, and she seems alarmed at the idea that Blasto's first thought is to replicate an, an inbringer. And uh, this makes him realize that Accord might actually be planning to let him do that and then kill him and take his his product. Yeah, an inbringer that he could control would certainly bring a order to the world, wouldn't it? Indeed, especially especially Simurg. Yeah. So uh, he examines Simurg's feather and Leviathan's blood and finds no actual cells present. It's more like crystals. So he starts growing one of his special cultures using the t- Simurg tissue regardless, mixing it with some of Mirrodin's cells. Yeah, so we see they're kind of not actually alive. They're not like they're not they don't have cells. They're not living. They can't exist on their own just in that form. Um, so they're they're weird yeah, more okay. little little tidbits of what these things are. Yeah. And then he uses a monkey, some of his own cells, and one of his special seeds to make a lab, ex- a, a lab assistant. That's normal. Yeah. And then he uses the lasers to label his projects, and he calls the abomination, the Simurg abomination, uh, the Morrigan. Um, which is a, which, it's a yeah. Irish uh, myth name, I think. Yeah, it's like a goddess of war and fate, which I think the fate connection is especially useful yeah. um, because it's, it's the Simurg. Um, I wonder if it's related to like Morgan, who was the, the enemy of, of like of, of Merlin. So we have like a Merlin Morgan connection yeah, there. Yeah, could be. Could be. Yeah. So he's uh, he's distracted by the TV, which uh, is turned up. It turns out there's an attack in progress. The Slaughterhouse-Nine are fighting dragon suits right there in Boston. But Blasto can't be bothered. He's doing Tinker stuff. He turns his attention back to his projects as the ambassador capes leave, uh, presumably to deal with the situation. <laughs> this this interlude is like watching a car crash in slow motion. And <laughs> you, you know it's coming and you're powerless to stop it. And then the Slaughterhouse Nine are there just to, just to put icing on that delicious cake. Yep, yep. And it's funny because he's just so like, he's such a, you know, stereotypical like, like tinker as we've been led led to see them that he's yeah. just like he's like oh all these all these interruptions and then he you know looks up and it's bone saw and a horribly modified damsel of distress 
traipsing downstairs uh, amid mutilating, uh, mutilated ambassador corpses. Mm-hmm. And and Bonesaw cheerfully questions him about his work. Um, I, I like I like how like plucky he is though. He's 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 like this is Bonesaw. I'm dead. Um, but he, yeah. he he shows a lot of just like hello Bonesaw. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I know then, you. Yeah, yeah, right. And then Defiant shows up, uh, quickly obliterates Damsel of Distress with the Nano Thorns. I have never in my life been happier to see fucking Arm Master. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, I I also appreciate the little irony here of a former superhero killing someone called Damsel in Distress. So he he damseled her by (laughs) murdering her. Uh, She probably deserved it. I mean, she absolutely did. Yeah. So uh, I, I wonder like tangent but like i wonder if defiant planned this out as like a trap because bonesaw is in this sealed lab where her epidemics can't get free and that's where he chooses to attack yeah it certainly seems like it like we've already established that arms master is is pretty good at picking and choosing the best places for fights he did it with leviathan he kind of like controlled the the flow of of the fight to go there so it, it wouldn't surprise me yeah yeah that's true um, so he, it's funny, like she keeps trying to talk to him throughout this fight and he just like mercilessly presses the attacks. Like the first thing he does is he nails her in the chest with his spear and she swears <gasps> and then he batters her against the walls like a ragdoll, uh, bludgeoning her. But of course she's really durable. Yeah. The swearing, I, I missed it the first time I read it. And then on my second read through, it, it really did jump out at me. Um, and like it, it leads to this moment where you think in this, that, that Bonesaw is finally gonna get got here like that she's really pushed up against a wall and is like she's swearing so like this is serious and she might actually lose here and matt it, it takes a lot to get me to cheer for the brutal death of a 12 year old girl but uh here here we are yeah here we are yeah yeah it's it's, it's interesting I, I always like to think about the the purpose of this here because it's it's really a character shift perhaps yeah so she tries to enlist blasto's help and she's like you know hey help me out here or or, or it's gonna be bad for you and he decides that he would honestly rather die uh, if it helps to kill her i blasto your name shall forever be enshrined in yeah. the cool people shrine for doing that <laughs> i need a better name for my shrine <laughs> So she tries to use some various acids to get free of of her stab location uh, and Defiant ends up cutting her almost in half except for her armored spinal column. And then she uses some kind of powder based substance that ends up kind of behaving like her own special form of containment foam to slow down Defiant. And then she crawls over to Blasto and climbs up him using her prehensile spine, uh, which is which is prehensile. I'll add. Uh, and, and then he tries to activate the Morgan to, to help, but it doesn't work. It's not viable. And then Bonesaw shoves her spine down his throat and operates him like a puppet. What the fuck? <laughs> this is insane. And then she uses him to walk over to the computer and gathers up the genetic samples from all the prior members of the nine while saying something about a cloning process and about Jack wanting to hurry the end of the world along. Oh, great. This is... It's good. It's good. And then uh, she stopped and turned toward the Morrigan. He could feel his blood run cold. Nah, Bonesaw said. Even I'm not that crazy. <laughs> I never thought I'd be relieved. Uh, um, anything to do with Bonesaw, but uh, here we are. Yeah, yeah. This is a surprising chapter. Yeah, but of course, yeah, the, the implication of this is now we have samples of every single Endbringer, and she's going to clone them. and Or not Endbringer, sorry, uh, member of the Nine. 
she's going to clone them. And so every hard-earned victory against the Slaughterhouse Nine is just going to go away now. And we're just going to have more of them. Hooray. Mm-hmm. Hooray. So, so Bonesaw escapes with poor Blasto. And we cut perspective to Defiant. Uh, Dragon is dissolving the goo that Bonesaw caked him with. And then they hold hands as they walk back to the mobile suits. They lost two suits, but they killed four of the nine. And as they reach the Uther, Colin realizes that one of the bodies is Manton. Yeah, the Siberian is dead. Um, so we have Siberian and, and, and Damsel in distress. Was there any indication of what the other two members were? Presumably some new recruits, right? Because I can't think of who else would be left that we specifically know. Yeah, I, I mean, mean Jack's I, definitely not dead. Bonesaw's not dead. Yeah, um, I think, I mean, Hookwolf is the only um, yeah. person that jumps to mind. I, I feel like there's could be him, but another be one that I'm weird. supposed to. Yeah, I don't think, I mean, I think we would have found out if it was, yeah, honestly. Yeah, yeah, I think it's probably the new recruits. Yeah. So before we move on, I, I think we went through this interlude pretty fast. And, and I think the reason for that is because a lot of this is just kind of set up for a bunch of future ominous shit. <laughs> um but what I wanted to quickly talk about here at the end is is we touched on this last week about Wildbow's ability to write horror. Um, and that's kind of what this interlude is. But I think he's playing with expectations a lot here. And I think it's why this was so engaging for me. Because we open this interlude very slowly. And we spend like most of the word count of the chapter with Blasto as he does his various experiments and we're slow into it. Like we, we follow him with the detail and, and as he starts messing with an end bringer and, and we, the growing and like the, the chopping off failed ones and forming it to the way. And we spend a lot of time with this stuff and we're building tension as he's fucking with an end bringer. And as like the rules of, of this kind of genre say that whenever the mad professor starts tinkering with this kind of stuff, he's going to lose control of his creations and, and be damned for it. That's what the genre kind of says. And, and you can tell that wild Bo knows that because it's just kind of a misdirect because suddenly the nine are here and then the tension ramps up and the, this, the, the pace ramps up and we, we keep playing in horror. Like we're still in horror. Like bone cell is cut in half and uses her fucking prehensile spine to crawl up someone and shove into their mouth it's crazy and, and Cronenbergian, but it's very different from where you think the um the the, the chapter's going to go. And yeah. it impacted me way more than I thought it would. And, and I think it's like because you, you seem to play in those genre tropes and then you subvert them in a little way. And, and it leads to moments where I just said, oh, shit, several times while reading this section. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think you're right. There's definitely like the, there's like a first half and a second half. And, and, and the first half is more about that, um, like atmosphere building this sort of, um, this sort of texture and, and you're, you walk in through this creepy, perfectly manicured supervillain layer with, with capes standing in like their perfect outfits with yeah. their perfectly oiled hair. And you go downstairs to this, to this basement that's full of medical equipment. And he's like, you know, casually creating these monstrosities and 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 caught up in like in the flow of of doing what he's doing and and that's its own that's its own like really interesting almost like atmospheric tone poem part of the chapter um which like you said narratively is setting up certain expectations that are then subverted and the second half is is its own separate body horror thing yeah Um, yeah yeah i i really like this interlude all right right, and 
then we get back to our our main characters. We return to our heroes with uh, Scapegoat bemoaning how hilariously bad Brockton Bay is and how terrifying Tattletale is. <laughs> yeah, this is more great Scapegoat characterization, and I'd argue that this would not have worked had we not laid the seats for that with that whole she was blind moment earlier in the, the section. Um, there's something very like John McClane diehardy to his complaints here to me. Like I can just imagining him saying, come to the coast, we'll get together, have a few laughs. It's like, <laughs> it's really wonderful. How was yeah. my, how was my Bruce Willis impression? This is pretty good. Spot on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah spot on. Yeah. No, I, I like, I like that a lot. I mean, this is another, you know, moment where it's, it's important to get comic relief. Yeah. Oh um, yeah. So, so she wants, uh, Tattletail wants to use Scrub plus another cape whose power relies on other realities to tear a hole into another world. Um, and, and she's, <laughs> uh, scapegoat could work too, but I think it'd take too long and it might need a human sacrifice having Scrub hit someone who was heavily affected by the goat's power. Regent nudged me. With Gru gone, it's your job to lay down the law. No human sacrifices. He'd mimic Gru's tone of voice with forced lowness. No human sacrifices? I didn't... I did, did I really want to veto any possibilities when we were faced with threats like the Inbringers and, and Echidna? <laughs> uh. <laughs> no, so not only is this just another amazing Regent moment where you're just like, God, I love Alec. He's so great. But Taylor. <laughs> like, Taylor. Yeah. Uh, hold hold on now. <laughs> let's not let's not take anything off the table. Yeah. You know, we, first of all, we don't like Lisa's plan here is insane, and we know it's insane, and, and we don't even know if Taylor's buying into this plan yet, but she's so unwilling to remove sacrificing someone from the table. And it's just like, what, yeah. what are you doing? Yeah. Jesus. Like I said, the moral center of the undersiders right here yeah, is, is, is being called to account by Regent. And, and yeah, Alec, he's making a joke here. He is. But yeah. the fact that he picked up on this and she didn't is pretty <laughs> concerning that our, our, like sociopath who can't feel emotions is like oh the rest of my team would find this troublesome to be talking about human sacrifices and then taylor like dick said our moral center goes well hold on hold on right it's just like oh my god yeah i mean yeah it's it's just it almost it almost stands by itself you almost i i i don't even want to like comment too much because it's like yep that that's hilarious yeah (laughs) so um there's this moment where she's talking about the travelers being from another world. And I'm not sure, like, and this is a genuine question, like, how does she know that? Is it because they told her? Is it because Coral t- told her? Is it her using her power? Um, is she guessing it based on the fact that they're, that, like, she strongly suspects that, that, that they took cauldron vials? Does she think that they were cauldron captives and not realize that, that they took the vials willingly? I mean, I'm not sure what we're supposed to believe about tattletale's state of of knowledge right here yeah and and my guess here is that you know it's tattletale seems to be making a lot of uh logical leaps here um and just pulling information and then making conclusions based off of it which is what she always does but she's she's jumping around way more than she normally does so yeah i mean i think it's very unclear how much she actually knows and it's because i i'm not even sure if she's very aware of how much she actually knows so yeah, because like 
she 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 says some things regarding the the the, the travelers that just kind of seem incorrect. So I'm like, yeah, okay, is she yeah. is she actually wrong? And she's just kind of blurring the details for the benefit of the audience. Or um, I, yeah, I, I, I think I think her just being flat out wrong here is important because mm-hmm. I, I I think she's behaving so rationally and so recklessly that that. Yeah, I mean, I think we're supposed to see. Yeah, she's kind of wrong with some of this stuff. She's, she's. Yeah, she's, we should be worried. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so yeah, Skitter, Skitter then heads out with Rachel, Gully, Wanton, and Scapegoat to find Atlas. Um, and uh, and we have this moment where she she kind of realizes that they know from Dinah that there's a good chance a large portion of the city will be will be destroyed. Um, and then she realizes that, that they don't actually know that that's going to be because of Echidna. It could very well be Tattletail's plan to, uh, to knock this hole into another world that levels half the city. Uh, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll find out that Echidna was permanently trapped beneath the rubble and not even in consideration. Yeah. And I think this is, again, the problem when you start like basing all of your plans off of the word of these very unclear precogs who don't have the full story and, like we've seen Lisa again and again in this section of the book behave so strangely and we've reinforced the negative sides of her behavior. Uh, we were talking about her acting recklessly. Um, she's seemingly convinced herself that the things she sussed out with her powers are right and has kind of forced everyone in the group to operate with that same line of thinking that, that I am right here. But we know she's been wrong before. We know her power can lead her astray. We've seen it. And when she uses inaccurate information as a basis to gather more information, that information is inaccurate too. And she tends to go down this rabbit hole where she just like keeps feeding off of that and reinforcing that and getting more and more off base. And and when I was thinking about this, this is the moment that I realized, Matt, who, who did she put in charge of pulling her back when she started behaving like that? Who was that? Yeah, it, 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 it was Gru. And I'm glad you're pointing that out because I... I did not consciously notice like, oh, yeah, she sent away the person who she designated to be her her minder. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's and, interesting that like Taylor almost realizes this, too. But when Taylor calls her out on it, she doesn't listen. It's only it seemingly when Gru tells her, hey, you need to step back and you're you're kind of getting in your own head here that she actually listens. But when Taylor says, well, I don't know, she's like, no, no, no trust me, trust me, um, which is very interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's funny that that Alec just before this was was in his own way noting like, I bet if Gru were here, he would probably say something about about this. But because because Gru is not here, there's no one there's no restraining force on Taylor's like absolutism and Tattletail's willingness to go off the deep end. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, for for Gru, who who no one listens to, yet he still serves a vital function. (laughs) Yep. Poor guy. Yeah. So Skitter, uh, as they're driving to find Atlas, she actually passes out in, in the van because she's so tired. But she wakes up when her power finds Atlas. And once again, the wards are terrified uh, by everything having to do with Skitter as she caresses and then mounts her giant monstrous beetle. And and it's very possible that she just failed to explain to any of these people what Atlas was. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, can you imagine them in this situation? Like, like, like Wanton is like is like totally freaked out. Gully doesn't even know what's going on. Scapegoat is blind and she's just hanging out with her giant beetle and she didn't explain any of this to anyone. Uh these yeah. poor wards. I know. 
Yeah, so she's flying up on, on Alice in the Sky, and she's giving erections to Wanton, who's driving the van, and they head back to where the others are or, or were, because Tuttletail and the others aren't where they were supposed to be. Yeah. Uh, so, so Gully communicates with the heroes using her armband, and they're led to a larger gathering of heroes where Tattletail is arguing in favor of her plan. Yeah, and just and, that beat of them not being there anymore shows more reckless, unusual behavior on Tattletail. Like the fact that they would move without relaying that information back to their team members, mm-hmm. it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, especially, yeah, because Noelle could pop out at any time, yeah. Yeah. So Tattletail is being unusually aggressive and reckless, provoking people when she should want to be allies with them, um, saying things she shouldn't say, and it leads to Miss Melissa, Miss Militia knocking her down and shoving a gun in her mouth to shut her up. Yeah, and it's really like, you know, you go through the first time and you read this and you you just read for fun. And then when you when I go back and, and when you pull out all this information and put it down on our script for us, it's amazing how many times we hit that tattletale is behaving strangely beat when you summarize it. Like it, it, it becomes so much more obvious when we do it this way. And yeah, and and I wasn't going out of my way to be like, I'm going to cherry pick all the tattletale right. moments. This is just what happens when you try to make a synopsis of this of this section. Yeah. And I think it, I think it, it, it makes it a lot more transparent that we're doing this intentionally. We're we're like, here's reckless Lisa again. She's driven by something I, I like. I can't even speculate at this point, man. I, I honestly don't know. I I'm assuming it has to do with their trigger event because that's the setup we got in the first chapter um, that I still think I've guessed correctly on and in, in my speculation from so many weeks ago. Um, and, and so maybe she's lumping Noelle like into the same category that she's put Taylor and she like needs to help her. Uh, maybe someone else. I, I honestly don't know anymore. <laughs> Um, and I, I can't even like properly speculate on it. Yeah, I, I think at, I think at this point, you probably don't have enough information to properly speculate on it. Yeah, but, I, um, I, I mean, it feels yeah. to me like we're, we're we're laying the groundwork and we're intentionally setting up that something is wrong with her. But we are very intentionally leaving both Taylor and the audience confused. So I don't think this is. This is a case of me missing setup beats, but like we're, I'm not, I'm definitely not supposed to know right now. Yeah. The, b- regarding her behavior, like it, it's actually been kind of subtle up to now. Like, like the, it's not fully being, your attention is not fully being drawn to her behavior being weird, although it is present. Yeah. But this is the point, like when Miss Militia knocks her down and Skitter actually like puts her arms out to stop the other undersiders from stepping in to help her. And when Miss Militia is like, what's going on with her taylor is like i don't know what's going on with her yeah <laughs> i don't know why she's being like this like someone says is this a clone of her <laughs> and, yeah. and and taylor's like nope unfortunately this is just lisa and yeah, yeah like she, taylor can't even defend her partner's actions anymore like that's how crazy she's gotten yeah so skitter tries to calm things down by suggesting that everybody except the three high-ranking heroes leave so they can talk about the more sensitive and tactically important matters in private but some won't leave, uh, particularly the case 53s, including Gully, uh, who won't answers. And, and Weld, um, I, I like it, says uh, Weld approached her. Their eyes met and Weld came to a stop, turning around so that he stood just to her right. He didn't say a word. Uh, I like that because like at first you think, or at least I thought, I thought Weld was going to be like, come on, Gully, we, we got to give him their space because like he's he's the career man, right? Yeah, yeah. But he, he just stands next to her and it's it's a bit surprising but it is consistent 
It is. It absolutely is. And I think it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of the episode, that this was set up in in the Yamada chapter. It was set up in, in Weld's conversation with Skitter about secret identities. And in here, in this moment, we see him make this choice. And I... I I love this. I like them coming together, ignoring orders because they deserve to find out what made them, what happened to them, what what is that? And and like I'll get to my speculation on this in the end, but I I just really think Weld is going to be changed like forever by this. Like this is the, the truth that is revealed to him here is fundamentally like destructive of everything that he thought he was a part of. And I, I can't see him being the same after this. <clears throat> yeah. So the, the heroes um, are still not inclined to let Tattletale speak. Uh, so she she presses her head to Miss Militia's gun and says this is an idea that she's willing to die for. Um, and she says that the triumvirate are behind Cauldron and that, that they are uh, Cauldron. And this is uh, one of those moments that we talk about when we talk about cinematic moments in this book. Because... The way Wild Bill writes sometimes, it's very conducive to defining these moments in like a cinematic way in my head. Like, like you, you can, you can see, we have, we have like the rumbling from Tattletail uh, from Noel, like about to resurface. We have helicopters flying around. We have Tattletail with a gun to her head on her knees. Everyone frozen around her. The Case Fifty Three looking on. There's this moment of of heightened tension, and you can see it play out. Like I can see the shots that would happen here. The, the dramatic pause, how everything would play out in, in on film. And it's such a great moment. It's so good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree. There's, there's quite a lot cinematic about this, this whole, this whole arc really. Um, so yeah, as, as they're talking, legend sets down and, uh, cause he's been, you know, lip reading and he outlines his sanitized version of what cauldron is about, uh, which he may or may not actually believe. And I think we, We'll kind of find out that he doesn't. Um, he, and he claims that it was Manton uh, stealing and selling cauldron materials uh, that then led to another group that actually made the K-63s. Yeah, this is the same old argument they've made before. And we, and we know we know that this is total bullshit. And we're pretty sure that Legend knows too, right? Because that was the whole lie detector um, thing where he determined that they were lying about that as well. Yeah, um, I think so. So my guess here is that Legend is like trying to keep going with the rest of the triumvirate he doesn't want them to know that he knows and he so he's 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 staying in his cover here he doesn't want to be blown um maybe he's trying to take cauldron down from the inside i'm not sure maybe i'm just being too hopeful because i like him so much but um that that's my guess at least mm -hmm. so so tattletale knows something is off and we get a sense that after this interaction with legend that she she now suddenly has more to go on but skitter stops her from speaking and and then before things can progress uh echidna smashes up through a nearby parking garage yeah sure glad this giant monster appeared to distill all that dramatic tension between the superheroes yeah <laughs> hooray what a relief yeah Whew. yeah so now echidna is twice as tall her limbs are much more robust uh, and she's growing more mouths, and she's covered in a crust in a crust of bone. Oh, go oh, good. That's yeah, it's great. Yeah, so we're <laughs> we're good. Yeah, and and then as Legend rejoins his comrades, Skitter detects him nod subtly at them, which is a confirmation for her that he was definitely not being completely honest. That's what she reads it as, at least. Um, 
yeah we, yeah, we still don't I, know if he's a double agent or not or what's going on there but yeah right. we know we that, don't know what exactly he's communicating to them but it's definitely something um deceptive yeah yeah and yeah. that's that's the end yeah we had uh i don't know if we nabbed all of the names uh, in fact i'm pretty sure we did not uh but we had one one skitter clone who was identified in the tags as a as a chitter which i like <laughs> that's pretty good yeah and we already talked about morgan um i mm-hmm. think yeah there's the, the, there were a few other capes introduced uh we maybe talk about them if they come up again yeah i think so yeah yeah so uh so so that was chapter uh that was that was uh, the first the first half of of arc 19 um good stuff well, how about how about some speculations there, Scott? All right. I don't have a lot. This like whenever we we do these, the first half of a, a two parter, the speculations are a little hard because it's like you can see stuff that they're setting up for the short term, but it's it, like you don't know where it's going to go. So it's it's hard. It's really hard. But yeah. I will say that there were no com- confirmed old ones. There were none this week. So yeah, nothing I was proven right or wrong on yet. Um, but my new one that I kind of, the, the only one I have this week, unfortunately, um, is that I think Weld is done with the PRT and the wards after this, his career with them is over. Um, I don't know what he's going to do. Maybe he'll kind of be cool if he joined the undersiders, but that's probably wishful thinking. Um, but, uh, I just think like him being at this career, like we, we've talked about how, like he dealt with all this by putting everything into his career and everything into, to his who he was in the PRT and t- for it to be revealed to him uh, in this moment as kind of a lie. Um, and, and he hasn't gotten the full truth yet. I suspect that he will. I don't know if it's going it, to it, probably tattletale talking to him at some point later in the future, maybe after this whole fight is done, but he's going to get the full truth of this. He's going to find out what cauldron is and to have cauldron as linked to the PRT as it is. I just think like he can't, he he won't be able to remain part of this anymore. So unfortunately I think he's done. He's done, which is kind of sad because I liked him as the ward captain, but I also understand it. I understand that kind of mentality. That's cool. Yeah. I, I think there were probably some like su- pseudo predictions that are interleaved with our, our discussion today. Like it, you, you can predict it. Like, I mean, you, you essentially did predict like, uh, tattletales, uh, issue that she's having has something to do with her trigger event. Like that's not the yeah. kind of thing that really lends itself to like a compact speculation, but like, right. Right. Like yeah. I, I, I think there's, I think there's always enough evidence in the first half of an arc that you can, you can say things like that, but those are, those aren't the, those aren't the exciting things. So yeah. yeah. All right. Well, uh, yeah, that wraps up our coverage of the first half of arc 19 scourge. I hope everyone enjoyed our discussion and hearing Scott's reactions. Uh, as always, we appreciate your feedback, and we're always trying to improve. So let us know if you have any advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's episode. You can reach out to us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at gotwormpod, where I also do my weekly live reads. Um, we might be moving the day of those a little bit. I haven't decided yet. I will, of course, announce it. But we currently do it Thursdays at noon. Uh, that might change a little bit. I'm not sure yet but we'll definitely let you know. Um, and my personal Twitter is at Scott daily 85. That's D a L Y. And Matt's is at more dinner. <laughs> that's right, Scott. 
Um, if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Worm, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find this, all the other podcasts we do, and all of our writing, essays, film, and TV criticism and more at dailyplanetfilms.com. This week on our main Daily Planet podcast feed, Matt and I were joined by Grand Maester James Gentry to talk all about Season 7 of Game of Thrones. Um, despite being pretty mixed on the season as a whole, I think it was a, a pretty great episode and a pretty fun conversation. Yeah, I, I agree. We, we had fun. Uh, we also have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash dailyplanetfilms. Again, that's D-A-L-Y. If you like what we do here and want to help make sure we keep doing more, consider donating a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Uh, special thanks to new senior associate producer at the $40 level, uh, <sighs> Kyakan. Thank you so much. That was so, that may, I think that was Friday that that donation came in. That yeah. made my weekend. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That was amazing. Thank you so much. That's so kind of you. Like we, I don't, we have to live up to this, to this, this amount of money that you guys are giving us. It is incredible. And w- with that in mind, I released a little update on Friday about uh, some changes that we're going to be making to the Patreon. We've talked about this on the podcast before, but I, I gave a little more update on there to show you guys exactly what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to be more transparent. We're going to show you where your money, exactly where your money is going. Uh, we're going to redefine our goals. We're going to redefine our, our, patreon rewards um and we're going to keep doing more stuff and, and adding more content and having more fun um this podcast we've got worm is not going anywhere we're uh, almost we're way past halfway through the book now but we're not stopping with worm we have not announced what we're doing yet but but you can rest assured that we are not stopping but we're also doing all these other things and we're going to keep doing them it's awesome thank you guys so much yeah really thank you and in case it's not obvious we really do find these donations to be to be very motivating oh yeah and and, and rewarding yeah um yeah uh, also speaking of patreon of course uh while you're while you're over there make sure you stop by wildo's page and toss some money his way because that is the guy uh without which none of this would have happened yeah this would be a pretty lame podcast if he hadn't written the book yeah it would be um, strange <laughs> what would we do <laughs> yeah weird um and of course if you can't spare any extra cash that's absolutely fine there are still tons of ways you can help us out maybe you can like grow a self-propagating creature in a lab whose entire purpose is to go around recommending we've got worm to everyone it sees um or if that's not like a reasonable request for some reason you could just rate and review us on itunes maybe yeah either one of those things really whichever is easier um this week's spotlight review comes from hashtag matt i love this which is <laughs> hilarious um who gives us five stars and says greetings from egypt holy shit matt we're global egypt we've had russia we've had egypt we've had the uk i think there was one from australia we're everywhere daily planet worldwide awesome um anyway <laughs> in this show we tune in for matt and scott two highly nerdy guys who discuss and dissect the wonderful work of fish- fiction that is masterpiece the immersion and breath that this podcast added for the books to me was insane from the tiny details about the first paragraph describes the chapter to the wild and scarily accurate speculations that scott somehow voodoos his way through makes this podcast a definite staple in my week keep it nerdy guys worms day is best day uh that's awesome matt they love us in egypt 
Yeah. Uh, you know, as this is the only review we've gotten from Egypt, I'm going to go ahead and, and, and safely make the assumption that this opinion is representative of the entire country. That's what I tend to do. Yeah. So thank you. Hashtag Matt. I love this. And thank you, <laughs> Egypt. Uh, if you need my photo for your, your renovations of the Sphinx, uh, just reach out to me on Twitter. I'll send it over um, and just let me know what it looks like when it's done. Yeah, we look forward to that. <laughs> Next week, we've got the conclusion of Arc 19 as the battle with Echidna appears to be coming to a head. Will anyone die in this battle? What the hell is going on with Tattletale? Why am I asking these questions when I clearly already know the answers? Tune in next Wednesday to find out. if you can tell but like i went from being fine to being seriously congested in the yeah. course of this podcast <laughs> I, did, I could tell yeah it was okay I, i'm not sure i guess i'm just sick now i guess i that just happened hours, that just became happened. sick yeah wasn't maybe, sick earlier today maybe you were like swallowed by some kind of giant monster and got mutated bacteria all over you yeah i mean or maybe i'm actually like i was replaced by a clone at one point exactly. like that sneeze you heard at one point was actually just me being like like ripped my, my throat ripped out and replaced by oh my god yeah. Oh my God. That's where your head goes. You read a lot of worm and you start thinking in <laughs> graphic terms. Oh boy.